Hey everyone, Ben here with a quick interruption before we get into today's episode to let you know that we have been nominated for a Sports Podcast Award. Yippee! That is very, very exciting. We are actually incredibly honoured and excited to have that nominee. And you, the listener, yes, the very person that is listening to this right now can help us win a Sports Podcast Award and get us on the podium for once rather than always being off the podium. To do so, head to sportspodcastawards.com. Dot com register to vote click on the best olympic and paralympic podcast category where you can then vote for us to win now you will have to listen to the other nominees as well but let's be honest you know you're going to vote for us because you're listening to our show today which means we know you like us and we'd very much appreciate the vote in advance sportspodcastawards.com that's how you do it and we thank you in advance and everybody who votes for us we promise to thank you in our acceptance speech should we win. Right now, I'm going to shut up, play some music, and then you're going to hear me talk again as we get into today's episode of Off the Podium. Enjoy. They're standing and they're applauding that dramatic performance by James Orville and Christopher Dean. Alex Philodeau. It takes a lot to make him happy and he is clearly pleased. She's up, she's moving nicely. She's got it. Yes! Sally Stegger, 132.67, has won at least the medal. She's 0.24 of you, you beauties. On the ice for the Gimlet. The Gimlet stopping. Sending Crosby, the golden goal. These golden games have their crowning moments. It is off the podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you for a special episode today. It is our 200th episode, celebratory episode. That makes sense in my head. We are celebrating 200 episodes of Off the Podium. Funnily enough, a very exciting occasion today. And as we do every 50 episodes, we like to take a pause and bring you a clip show, bring you some highlights from our last 50 episodes and celebrate the occasion that is getting to a big number. We're very, I guess, superstitious here and off the podium. We like those nice, big, round, even numbers. But a bit of a different one for you today. Obviously, with our 100th episode that we brought you, we had Colin and Jared on to discuss a little bit about the history of the show and celebrate the show and memories and all that sort of stuff. We didn't decide to do that this time around because realistically, in the last 50 or so episodes since we brought you our last best of, we haven't really had a whole lot of episodes outside of interviews. So we thought we might save them to come on to talk about some celebratory things about Off the Podium. Maybe when we get to our 300th episode or something like that. If you if you want to hear some good old memories and the history of the show and everything, go back and listen to our 100th episode to hear stories there. But today, we are going to bring you snippets from every single episode, from episode 151 right through to 199. We've got some great interviews with some great guests that you may have loved, and I'm sure not may have loved, you would have loved across the world. And we're going to bring you highlights of all of those ones there as well. And of course, a few little non-interview episodes that we have done since our 150th episode, ranking the medals, talking about Beijing, previewing that, which of course we'll talk a little bit more about the end of this episode. And of course, also our sports episode that we did as well. So 
Great highlights here along the way. Now, just to give you a taste of who these are, I'm not going to sit here and go through every single guest, but these are in order. So you will hear clips from episode 151 right through to 199 in order of who appeared in what stage of the show, essentially. So if you go back and you want to listen to any of these ones, for example, Barnaby Delaz, you will hear, of course, will be our uh, first snippet here from episode 151. And that will go, of course, all the way right through in order to 199, where you will hear our Daniel Gregg episode episode uh, interview, of course, that we aired uh, yesterday, funnily enough, too, if you're following these in chronological order. So uh, that's how it works. So by all means, if you're desperate to know who is in what section of this, you can, of course, find us on uh, all our social media channels and p- uh, podcast platforms. They're in order, essentially, and you'll be able to find them. That makes sense. Makes sense in my head. I'm going to shut up. I'm going to throw right now to some magical music, and you're going to hear some snippets from episodes 151 through to 199 as we celebrate our 200th episode here and off the podium, and I'll be back at the end of this episode to give you a taste of what's still to come. But sit back, relax, and take this trip down memory lane and enjoy. Imagine when it comes to then the, the management, like weight management, that comes down to a, a good diet, a good sort of weight training regime. Because I mean, I, I can imagine you kind of got to you got to keep that target weight. Does that sort of add the difficulty to sort of the training aspect? Uh, well, I, I'd say for the lightweights, it's definitely really hard to to keep the weight. And in the winter, they're going to walk around at anything from seventy five to eighty kilos uh, for the guys. Um, and then they're going to go down to weight uh, when the summer approaches and the racing approaches and they have to weigh in two hours before the race. So it's not like in uh, combat sports where, it, where they have a full 24 hours and they can lose all their water and then gain it back uh, until the, 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 the fight. Uh, in rowing, it's really, they introduced that to, uh, to protect the athlete's health in a way because like that they have to go down to like um, stable weight, I'd say, even though most of them, they sweat, they would sweat like one or two liters before the race just to get those last uh, kilos down. But um, yeah, they have to go down progressively and it's a bit more healthy uh, for most of them. Some of them struggle, obviously, but um, again, if if your normal weight is like say 78 kilos, uh, you don't have a lot of chances again people which are 95, 100 kilos, so, and also taller than you. So they go for that. And then uh, for the, the heavyweights so or the open weights, it's um, mostly the other way around. We have to uh, make sure we don't lose weight because rowing is a endurance sports for sure, but it's also a, a strength endurance sport. So there's a lot of a strength factor in it um, and leverage as well. So if you're taller, you've got big levers, that's an advantage for sure. And uh, if you're a bit heavier, you're going to have more power. Uh, obviously, you don't want to be 120 kilos or 150 kilos because you're going to sink the boat. But um, yeah, you want to be in that 90 to 100 kilos range. And um, with the amount of training we do, it's mostly a struggle to keep the weight rather than than go down to weight. So for me, for example, in, in the winter uh, when it's colder and, and uh, so it's hard on the system, I really have to every meal I overeat basically when I... Uh, yeah, when I'm um, not hungry anymore, I, I take another plate or two. So just to make sure I keep the weights. And then in the summer, I just eat normally until I'm I'm not hungry anymore. And um, 
and I go down a, a couple of kilos naturally, but it's not a, it's not an effort. It just uh, goes down by itself. So yeah, it's, it's also a struggle to keep the weight almost as much as to lose the weight. <laughs> wow. Well, I'll explain to you. mentioning to me off air about the whole second breakfast and the second dinner now it makes complete sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We eat we eat just like four to five meals, proper meals a day. Um, anything from yeah, around five to six or even more, a uh, thousand calories a day. Wow. Um, so and as well, it's harder when you try to eat healthy because it's easy to get six six thousand calories of uh, McDonald's in, but if you try to eat uh, pretty clean and uh, you have to, because uh, especially when you get older, uh, um, obviously when I was 20 or 18, I could eat uh, lasagna, pizza, whatever, and it, it was fine. But now I, I notice if I, if I eat uh, too much junk food, uh, I'm going to feel it the next day. So I try to eat kind of clean, uh, but to keep the calories up, you, you have to eat some, uh, some biscuits or some chocolate or whatever in, in the evening. And, and uh, it, it, it's good, but sometimes you would rather not do it. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So there's no stacking up the trays in the Olympic Village of the McDonald's, basically in between events. Uh. <laughs> uh, no, no, but after the event for sure. But they, uh, yeah. now it's it's gone. I think this year. Yeah, I've learned that Tokyo yeah, yeah, they didn't know was the first. I don't know if the probably not the first Olympics ever. I'm sure they didn't probably have McDonald's back in Antwerp in, in yeah. 2020. But I mean, it's for the first in a while that it seems McDonald's yeah, wasn't in the Olympic. They're Village. not. A, they're, they're not the sponsor anymore. Uh, right that's why yeah wow geez that that's a that's a partnership that you think would live forever the mcdonald's and the Olympics. like i i used to remember when every olympics was on you could go to mcdonald's and for like an extra dollar you got like a glass with a different sport on it and kind true, of like true. Yeah, yeah, big yeah. tie in that was a, they were great those glasses lasted for years you got one in the cupboard you know they were they yeah were great no, that's gone now that's gone oh geez that that's sad to learn So I had three speeches written. I had one for Putin, I had one for Medvedev, and I had one for Shubalov. Shubalov walks in the room with this giant circus of Russians, loud, just Russians. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know why I'm here? I said, yeah, I know why you're here. Because your government's not sure you're going to win this. So they sent you. He says, let me see the speeches. So I gave him the speeches. Classic Russian. These are terrible. I hate it. Not good. You know, we're, we're, we're 12 hours to showtime. We're going to redo everything. I said, no, you're not. You're not going to redo shit. You're not going to touch it. You can't do it. It's impossible. Nothing's impossible for Russians. I said, well, this is, this is the way it's going to be. <laughs> well, I'm changing my speech. I brought my own speechwriter. I said, well, no, you're not. He said, yes, I am. So while that's going on, I found out the Trepka's not coming. I look at Yelena Esenbaeva. She's two-time gold medalist, three-time world champion, record holder in the, in the pole vault. She's just a machine. Well, she's there. Abramovich is there. You know, they, they brought all the, the glittery, pretty people of Russia for this thing. And she's sitting across from me. I said, Yelena, can you speak English? Well, of course I can speak English. I said, you got anything pretty or, or nice that you can wear? Why? I said, because you're my new speaker. She said, you're kidding me. I said, no, let's go downstairs to the bar. It's a three-minute speech. I'll write it for you right now. We go downstairs. I mean, I'll work with her a little bit on it. 
She loves it. And I said, I want you to do this one part. I want you to look and I want you to say it very slowly. I love football. And I want it to come from the back of your throat. Really, really sexy. And she got it and she was laughing and we were laughing, but you know, hell you're, you're performing. So we go back up and uh, they're all there. Just crazy Russian riot going on. Got them quiet. And uh, I said, okay, here's Elena's speech. Dead silence. We hate it. It's terrible. (laughs) She is world champion. She's Olympic champion. That's all she should talk about. I said, no, that's not what we're going to talk about. The audience is this. So in the course of all this craziness, Shuvalov's guy writes him a new speech. Horrific Politburo sounding thing. And he writes her a speech. She's in a tough spot. It's the deputy prime minister of the Russian Federation. So she comes to me and goes, Terence, I hate this speech. I want to give your speech. I said, here's what, Elaine, I'm going to tell you what, what I'm going to do. Tomorrow, uh, all the slides that we've designed are going to support the speech I've written for you. So if you get up there and give his speech, it's, go- it's going to be nonsensical. And by the way, once you're live to the world, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah. So the reality is she gave my speech. Russians erupted, went crazy, screaming, crying. Best speech we've ever heard. Unbelievable. She's funny. <laughs> <laughs> She's fantastic. <laughs> so, you know, there are so many stories like that. And here's the great story, the final, the final great story on that, the Russian bit. So we... We all go to this super posh restaurant in the nicest hotel in Zurich, which, of course, the Russians were staying in. They had me in like a holiday in downtown. They're in this castle looking thing. And we all go have dinner. And there's 30 or 40 of us. I don't know. There's a lot of people. Suddenly, right toward the end of dinner, everybody's phones goes off. Everybody, except mine, of course, and my team. All the Russians' phones are exploding. Well, Putin's about to land in his private jet. So they get up and leave, just left. And so the restaurant manager comes over to me, and he goes, who's going to pay for this? (laughs) And I I said, well, I I don't know. Uh, uh, He he said, well, you are. I said, okay, uh, how much is it? It's it's $40,000. Wow. I said, well, let's see if America Express really works the way they say it does. Here, here's an Amex card. I gave him an Amex card. It went through. Wow. $40,000. So the next morning, I know, I, I just knew that people might forget that I did that. So the next morning, I found the bid leader and I found their finance guy. And the Russians always travel with cash. Yeah, use credit cards and I'll take cash. So in the stairwell of a hotel, he counts out $40,000 to me in $100 bills. <laughs> and to get back in, get back in the United States, you can only, you can only have, you have to have less than 10,000 cash yeah. to come in as an American citizen. So I had to give everybody in my team like $9,999. Is your bonus. To get back. <laughs> so one of the guys who will remain nameless, uh, one of my team, external guy, he's connecting through Paris. So I get back to Atlanta and I call him 
like a week later. I said, dude, can you just go ahead and send me the check? <clears throat> 10 grand, 9,000. He goes, can you give me a couple more weeks? And I said, well, sure. Well, what's going on? He goes, well, I've never had that much money in my pocket. And I went through Paris and I saw this incredible watch and I bought it for my wife. I said, you did what? <laughs> so, you know, there's so many stories in bidding. It's hilarious. But that's, I just, uh, I just wanted to, I'm just surprised you didn't go straight to Putin. Putin was in town. Where's my $40,000? Here's your speech I wrote for you. I want my money. <laughs> uh, you know, Putin, I did write his speech for Sochi. I wrote 17 speeches, versions of speeches for him. Wow. And then uh, we, and we never knew which one he was going to give. He never rehearsed. And then, You've got 35 minutes. We're going to go out of Mala. It's 2005. He's the last speaker. I didn't have any slides for him because I didn't know what he was going to say. So we just put up a picture of mountains. And by the way, those pictures of those mountains were the Dolomites because we couldn't even get up to where the mountains were in Sochi in those days. So I see members had no idea what they were looking at. It was a Dolomite. Wow. And he spoke uh, in uh, Russian, in English and French. He did a great job. There were probably bits and pieces of my speeches mixed with other pieces of speeches in it. Um, just craziness. You know, once once the green light goes on, you don't really know what's going to happen. You, you, you've planned, you've prayed, you hope that hope the technology works. Uh, you hope that, you know, the teleprompter doesn't break. It's, it is literally uh, high wire act, no net. And they're all different. What is the weirdest <laughs> instruction a coach ever gave you? The weirdest instruction a coach has ever gave me? Uh, that's a hard one. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. To me, I would say my old coach used to always tell me to, um, he used to tell me a cue, right? And the cue was always like, go left. But he never explained what that meant, never explained what the purpose was, never explained really how to do it. Like, he would just be like, go left. And he would think that people would know what that meant. <laughs> and I'd just be like, logically, bro, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so... That's the one that, like, you know, I heard a lot. I don't know if it was the weirdest I've ever heard, but I've heard that so many times and I begin to hate that. Like, go get left. What does that mean? What does like, that mean? What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> did, did, did anyone not have the courage to go, hey, hey, coach, uh, go left? What, oh, yeah. what, do you, what do you mean? Oh, yeah. But he couldn't explain it because he wasn't a hammer thrower. So, you know, <laughs> you know how that goes. And that's I, I, why I, I had to get a new coach. <laughs> I, I would assume that in the sport of hammer throw, yeah, go left's a bit vague. Um, you know, you, you're kind of going left, you're going right, you're going left, you're like you're going around in circles, like it's not like you're exactly. going one direction. Wow, exactly. Go go left. I'm like okay, go left. Bro. Wow. Okay. Yeah. This one, if I could be any superhero, I would be. This would be for you, not me. You don't have to pick mine. <laughs> uh, probably, I mean, Superman. I mean, it's kind of yes. a, he can fly, he has laser eyes, he's super strong, he can do whatever he wants. So, yeah, probably I think, Superman. 
to add to that too, that everybody needs to remember, it's Henry Cavill as well. I mean, he's that the most attractive man on the planet? Like, I mean, yeah. come on, like, <laughs> ticking all Not the boxes to, there. <laughs> Not trying to compare myself to him, but uh, my first, well, still to this day, I had a little shorter hair uh, when I first started playing, and sometimes my hair would fall out of my helmet and make a little curl right oh, here. Nice. And I'm a tall, and I'm a tall, you know, dark-haired man, and everyone <laughs> on the North on the South Korean team, uh, anytime they'd see me in a hallway at a tournament or anything like that, they'd all would they nickname me Superman. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna look for the we're gonna look for the curl during uh, Beijing. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah, think we'll make So maybe it won't happen. Yeah, I, I like this. Who knows? Well, I mean, if that's the case, Henry Cavill's often touted as being the next James Bond. Jack. I mean, hey, you know, if you've got those looks and you know Superman, who knows? Bond. They they might they might need you. They might call you up. Yeah. How's your acting? I, I don't think I could compare my acting skills to him. Oh, anything's workable. You can work on that. You can do it. You can go win gold in Beijing, gold in Paris, and then play James Bond. Hey, it's never you know never been done before until you. did the Australian Grand Prix Celebrity Challenge back in 2011. Now, I'm a, I'm a massive F1 fan. I was at that race. What was that experience like, getting to uh, race other celebrities around Albert Park? Can I tell you that this is a hilarious story. It was one of the best weeks of my life because do a week of training before the Celebrity Grand Prix because you basically do the defensive driving course. You have to pass that so that you can compete. You are... Um, it, basically they're making sure that you are safe because you do have all the same risks, amazingly, as the actual proper drivers that are out there, uh, the professional drivers, uh, but you don't have the experience. So they, they need to make sure that you're not going to um, kill yourself or kill someone else in the, in the process. But I loved it. I come from a father who is a rev head. My dad, Bruce, is has always loved cars. My grandfather owned a service station in Brisbane growing up. So cars and that world has always been a big part of my life. I had always considered myself a good driver. My dad had taught me to drive when I was very young. And um, it was always a thing in our family that you needed to be a good driver. And uh, so I was in my element. I loved that week, loved putting on my race suit, loved putting on my balaclava. And hilariously, I qualified 10th. So we have qualifications just like the proper drivers. And I qualified 10th after I got a, a taken out by someone, started 10th on the grid, worked my way up through the, the field. And on the final corner, I was in fifth position behind Shannon Eckstein, an incredible um, uh, surf lifesaver and uh um oh my gosh uh i'm trying to think of his name brian mcfadden brian mcfadden the incredible uh, irish singer who had spent a lot of time in australia and these two boys were i didn't know it at the time but they were fighting it out for third position and we came around to the final turn and they were fighting it out and i knew that they'd both gone into that final turn too fast so i just sat back and i let them go wide and I snuck in on the inside, put my foot down and managed to sneak over the line in third position. So I'm on the podium and I came back and I'd flown my dad down to Melbourne and uh, my uh, fiance, Sam, as, was there as well. And I came back to our, you know, the VIP area and my dad just had tears streaming down his face. Wow. And I said, what's wrong, dad? And he said, 
that's the most proud I've ever been of you. <laughs> <laughs> Olympic gold medal, world champion, who cares about that? You got third at the Grand Prix. <laughs> you just had the drive of your life and came wow. third at the Celebrity Grand Prix. That's the most proud I've been of you. So, wow. You did a you Bradbury. Know, you did a Bradbury. Everyone <laughs> fell over you through. That's great. Wow. That's fantastic. Gee. Oh, hilarious. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Thanks for that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. Mum was up at the time visiting me. I was in Canberra um, and how my coach told her that I, <laughs> that I was approached to do it was showed, a, I think it was a video, it was a bobsleigh, it might have been a bobsleigh crashing or like it's a bobsleigh going very fast, something like that. Walked up to my mum and was like, this is what your daughter's going to do. And she looked at me like, okay. <laughs> um, she's like, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Um, I called and I called dad and he was like, um, I hope you said yes. <laughs> like I haven't even <laughs> spoken to her yet. I was just like given an opportunity. So yeah, everyone was pretty excited, but yeah, I don't think I hesitated for a second. And I, I, mean, I didn't know much about bobsled then either. I knew cool runnings and I knew the winter Olympics. So yeah. Which ticks off my second um, cliche question then. Did you go and rent out cool runnings to rewatch it for the first time in a while? Yes, we watched Cool Runnings that night um, or like the next night. I watched it with my mum and my roommate at the time. Um, everyone loves Cool Runnings though. I, I think I, it's popped up on the TV quite a lot since doing this as well. And whenever it comes up, people will message me, like my family will send me a photo. Oh, guess what we're watching? <laughs> um, but it is a great movie though. It is a great movie. Which I love those videos I have on YouTube. I think it's Variety does it. They'll get, say, you know, like a, a professional, they'll get a same bolt to sit down and, you know, comment on, on running in movies and things like that. So I think they need <laughs> to kind of get you and Brie to sit down and just, you know, let's comment on cool runnings. Or you could go back and get the um, the Bond film on a Majesty's Secret Service when James Bond bobsleighs. So, I mean, kind of you could do that and comment on it and kind of go, okay, this is bullshit. This is not how it would work. Yeah, actually that Bond one, my dad sent that to me not long ago. I'd never seen it actually, to be honest. Um, but my dad sent me the video of that forever. And my first comment was, this is the longest bobsled run I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he actually bobsleds again in, um, for your eyes only, he does it, he's on skis and he's chasing a bob. So there's two bobsleds in James Bond. So oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, uh, just yeah. You, you've been the James Bond lifestyle and you're also, you know, being Doris Bannock at the same time. Like, I mean, God, just tick all the, all the movie boxes off there. It's kind of the lifestyle you want, I think. Yeah, not bad. It'd be ideal. Get to jump in a bobsled randomly to chase people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why not? Just, just make sure when you're at the Olympics, look behind you. You might have Daniel Craig chasing you down on the, on the, <laughs> uh, the track, which I'm sure might not be a bad thing. I mean, I you know who would say no to Daniel Craig chasing him down? Yeah, Why not? exactly. There he is. Just I'm, hang on, pretty sure, hang on. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we'd be happy with that, yeah. Yes, I think the Olympics will get a bit of a boost there. Like random um, stranger on the course. Like, oh, it's Daniel Craig. There he is. <laughs> Boosting <laughs> the Olympics. Might get a few more viewers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you get started in the sport, uh, I mean, was this, you're obviously not imagining doing 130 kilometres an hour as like a 10-year-old, but uh, I mean, when you sort of build yourself up to those speeds, that's obviously a key aspect of the sport is to kind of work on that speed, mix with the technique and kind of, and, and hit those moments. I mean, do you remember sort of the first time you're, you're pulling over 100k and kind of the feeling, the adrenaline, everything going through your body? Yeah. I mean, it's not so much learning to, to do with the speeds, it's, it's just, 
you know, the whole time, like even now I'm back to basics and it's, and it's all about working on that foundational skiing skills primarily, um, which is through GS and slalom. So that's what we primarily train. And then um, once you turn fist, so there's some children's super G, so under 16s, they have um, super G courses. And I always loved, yeah, doing since under 14s, I loved doing the super G. That was my first international race I won overseas. I went to Andorra and I won a race called Trophy Barufa. And I won um, a massive, I won 10,000 Chubba Chubbs. Wow, 10,000 chubby chubs. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's, um... so I won, I, won um, I think it was about 25 kilos of chubby chubs. <laughs> that, that's be- <laughs> Come on, that's better than the Crystal Globe. You, you can't top that. That's, that's an insane, that's an insane prize. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think I still have some expired chubby chubs to this day. <laughs> I was going to say, I'd be a bit worried if you went through 10,000. Ch- I mean, I imagine your friends are getting chubby chubs for Christmas that year, uh, <laughs> birthdays, like Mother's Day, Father's Day. Everyone gets chubby chubs. <laughs> Basically at the race, so there's like two drums, um, two a, like like a 12 or 13 kilo drum of chubby chubs and I had two and the one <laughs> drum my parents were like, because we, we had this tiny um, car in Europe that we'd driven from Austria down to Andorra. Um, so for people that don't know, Andorra is a tiny country in the French Pyrenees between Spain and France. So it was about a 21, 22-hour car, car trip. And um, so we were packed with gunnels, like skis for like uh, – because I was racing all week. We had all the skis, my parents. And they're like, there's no way you're bringing two – like uh, 25 kilos of Chubba Chubbs home. <laughs> so they're like, you have to give away one drum. So I literally did one of those crowd ones where you just like throw <laughs> it into the crowd, like and all the kids from the whole race are just like, they all grabbing, it's like throwing money into the crowd. Um, wow. So I did one of those. So that was, that was pretty cool. That was a big highlight. And then um, I was like, no, I'm going to eat them. They're, you know, they're... So I kept one drum and, um, and then – I got back to my um, base in Austria and my parents were like, well, you can't eat, you can't eat like 2000 chubba chubs. So <laughs> you've got to like give some away. So I had to give a thousand away and they're like, you can keep a thousand. You can that keep a thousand. Wow. So then I was like at the time, and then every time we'd go on a car trip, I'd be sucking on a chubba chub. But then <laughs> after it, like, I don't know, after a couple of years, you're like, oh, I never want to look at another chum <laughs> You go through all the good flavours and then you're only stuck with the shitty like orange ones and stuff yep, yep. and you're like, oh. Wow. Jeez. First of all, didn't know, is, is just Andorra the home of Chupper Chups? Is this just a thing they love? I mean, is that why people should go to Andorra to go for Chupper Chups? Um, no, they sponsored the race. Wow. By, I, basically, I think they gave the prizes, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, no, to Chubba Chubs are made in Spain, um, near oh, Andorra. And okay. yeah, they'd, they'd sponsored the kids' rights. Jeez. And I mean, second to that, I, c- I can't imagine when you get into skiing, you've got these, you know, ambitions for Crystal Globe, maybe an Olympic medal that, yeah, third on that list now kids can achieve is, hey, you know, 10,000 Chubba Chubs. That's, that's a pretty good result. Oh, so. <laughs> no, there's a, there's one race that's still in the kids in that under, under 14s. There's a race in France. Um, which international. So it's basically like in the kids under 14s, you're not in the open category, 
So there's about 10 races in the calendar that are all the top international national teams will go to. Um, and then I was one of the only handful of Australians that, that would go overseas to Europe and do them. And there's this race in France I went to every year and you'd win your own weight in lollies. Holy crap. So you literally, <laughs> like, think of a wooden scale. You would, the kids would sit on it with their <laughs> ski boots and skis to make it heavier. And these guys would just put boxes and boxes and boxes of lollies on the other side until the scale evened out. <laughs> I, I, I love the aspect that there's just this thing now in Europe I'm picturing where it's just like, hey, let's get the young skiers fatter by giving them all the sugar. Uh, there's candy, there's chopper chops, like let's load them up. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> yeah, and then once again, guess what Greta came in that race? That was the one race as, as, an, as a 12, 13-year-old I wanted to win and I came second. Oh, <laughs> no. no. I so oh. the chopper chops are still... But now, yeah. So then, once again, the kids would throw, throw them into the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> I think next time, time you bump into Thomas at the village, you know, hey Thomas, I have got an idea for uh, Milan twenty twenty six for you know incentive for for our skiers to win. Not that they need an extra incentive to win an Olympic gold medal, but hey, body weight in candy, uh, ten thousand chopper chops. Like you, you want to appeal to the kids for the Olympic movement. Here it is. That's that's what you do. Yeah, I don't know how, how that would go over. But, I mean, look, McDonald's was a long sponsor, so. Yeah, yeah. sadly no longer. We've heard a lot from our Tokyo athletes that are unfortunately not in the village anymore. So um, that's a that's a bit of a shame. If First Olympics look, in Sochi. Look, it won't be a big change to us because we were always in the mountain village and they'd only put Maccas down at the ice park. So we only got to try Maccas once. <laughs> so it won't be a big change for us. Won't for be, but you're used to it. All the ice athletes are complaining now, and you're like, "Hey, welcome yeah. to the skiers' world. Come on now, this is uh, this is what we're used to." So Jamie refuses to toboggan. She doesn't. She says she doesn't even want our kids to toboggan or anything like that. Which that's. That's an activity you have to do in Canada. Like there's nobody who it's doesn't law. do it. Yeah, it is law. Yeah, adults do it. <laughs> uh, we went tobogganing. One of the things we would always do is on uh, New Year's Day because it's everybody's off. It's just a thing where you always go tobogganing. And uh, Jamie and I went, this was like, I think before we were married uh, and my nephew's there. And uh, the first time there's a big tobogganing hill you have here, which is it's, you know, man-made, I guess you could say. Uh, the hill itself isn't man-made, but they'll, you know, pack it down and make it safe and build little jumps and everything. So we're there with our nephews. And then we look at, I'm like, Oh, there's like this really steep slope, which is basically in the woods. <laughs> it's like a cliff and the woods and it's extremely steep. And so a couple of us, you know, uh, older people, uh, were like, okay, well let's try this one. It says, you know, hands off or whatever, or, um, trespassing beware when <laughs> the signs don't go here, this is dangerous. Uh, so we start going down and it's, it's, you know, fast, it's steep. Uh, and Jamie had not gone down. I was like, no, I don't want it to bog in. And she's like, well, this actually looks kind of fun. So I'm going to try. So she hops on and she goes down and the, almost immediately uh, rolls off of her toboggan, starts tumbling down the hill, slams into a rock. And I'm videotaping oh. this. And I go, up, Jamie, that was so epic. That was amazing. And she's like, oh, I'm really hurt. She, she banged up her thigh. Like she had a bruise this size on her thigh. <laughs> And said, I am never tobogganing again. The first time I go down, I wipe out. I'm never tobogganing again. The next year, 
we again go and my nephews are there and I'm at the bottom of the hill with one of my nephews and I look up and I'm like, Oh, Jamie decided to go. Cause I see her on a sled after saying the whole time. No, I got hurt last year. I'm not going to go I'm like, Oh, she's, she's going down with one of my nephews on her lap. And why is she headed for the ramp? And I see her go <laughs> off the ramp and land and she breaks her tailbone. Then oh. <laughs> the second time she ever toboggans shatters her tailbone uh, did you so go now she's, Jamie that was awesome and crazy I got it all on video <laughs> no that ended up being an afternoon in the emergency room and uh, there's nothing they could do for a broken tailbone no. either no. so yeah she, she was like uh, I remember the first couple days uh, she would call me and her brother over and she's like, I need two people to hold me up so I could brush my teeth. <laughs> One of us bracing her arm as she's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. but it was epic. It was great. I got all on video. Do you still have the video of this? Can this be something the we first, share on our social media? <laughs> I'd have to dig it up, but I would have the first. I, I didn't have a camera on me for the second one where she broke her tailbone. But the first one, I probably do have it somewhere. Maybe we'll share. By the time the next Olympus comes up, maybe I'll be able to share it. Does it come then with a moment when you're out there on the floor and you're you're about to make that first lift that, I mean, it's always interesting speaking to our guests about maybe when you, you realize you're an Olympian, like is it the moment you get the boarding pass? Is it the moment you're stepping out the floor and you're seeing the rings? If you got to do the opening ceremony, the opening ceremony, like is there a moment where all of a sudden it just kind of hits you and you go, crap, I'm an Olympian? Yeah, it, it was opening ceremony. Um, being able to go out in March and being able to go out and, see the Olympic rings and see the opening of the games. It just felt so, it was insanely emotionally. Like I walked on my own and I, I was just like welling up with emotion that whole time. I was like, this is really happening. This is, this is for the kid that like really, really struggled um, during gymnastics, post gymnastics, during weightlifting that, that wondered whether it was all worth it, wondered whether, I could. Um, Which, that, that's when it hit home. It's, I mean, even outside of the fact that it was a unique opening ceremony, I mean, it doesn't take away from the fact that you've got that special moment. You're walking behind the Australian flag, you know, you're into an Olympic stadium, the rings are everywhere, yeah. just like all that kind I didn't of anticipate stuff. it would feel like that, mm. but it did. Was it... I mean, what was that like experience? I think you might be the first athlete we've talked to that actually went to the opening ceremony. We've talked to people about the closing ceremony, but I mean, sure. watching it at home, it's weird. But like, I mean, was it, I guess you've not experienced another Olympics, so you didn't know any different, but was it sort of a unique experience being in that stadium with no crowd and kind of just how it was? Like, did it feel strange? I can only compare it to Youth Olympics where we, I cannot even recall whether we marked. I don't think that we did. But I remember sitting in the audience at Youth Olympics and watching the performances and just being overawed by what a beautiful performance they put on. Um, the experience of actually marching is is different. You're bust there. There's a lot, a lot of waiting in lines under the – you don't see the, the show, the performance per se. Um, I mean, Kate Campbell, I, I looked at her and I'm like, you know what you're doing here. She come out – we were in our formal uniform. We had a little sports craft bag, very handy, um, but small. And Kate Campbell whips out this little tiny little tripod 
thing that turns into a stool and she sits hmm. down. I'm like, that was smart. <laughs> the rest of us are like, like getting She'd tired. She'd been to a few at that point. Sitting on the like, floor. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> learned from experience. <laughs> the rest of us are sitting on the ground and it was really hot and humid. And, and you, you wait in a massive conga line basically for your turn as, as a country. And I don't know what was with the order in Japan. I, I don't I think know it's what Japanese there. alphabet. From memory, I think that's there kind we of go. How they did it. Yeah, yeah. So I think we were thirtieth or something. So there was a significant, significant amount of sitting around and and Which, if you're Greek, you always know you you're handy, right? Because you're going to be first if you're Greek. So <laughs> it's kind of like the perks, I guess. Of yeah. uh, Pretty cool, hey. For Greece. You're out and already you're in the state straight away, boom. And you know, the 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 less perk of being the host nation, right? Like you gotta you gotta wait around. (laughs) When we came to the winters, Pyeongchang, um, what was I mean, how can you, I guess, compare a, a winters to a, to a summer? And then I guess also for your role, is that also uh, maybe not as prominent as a summer? I mean, or is there more prominence kind of when you, you're dealing with clients for, for a winter that people maybe don't understand? Yeah, it's different. You know, I would say is, is there's probably only about a 20 to 25% Olympic fan overlap, at least people who travel to the games between winter and summer. So now I have friends that only go to summers. I have friends that only go to winters. Now I have friends that, that, that go to both. I would say, you know, for me, I, I, I grew up in Southern California. I'm a Southern California kid, uh, warm weather my entire life. The first week in Pyeongchang was was cold. I mean, it was really cold. Uh, <laughs> uh, the car I was driving around, the temperature not, it never got above zero degrees. Wow. And I think I, I'd never experienced anything like that. Uh, opening ceremony was the coldest I've been in my life. My, my wife, uh, my wife's not able to go with me to winter games because of, because of her job and things that happened during that time. She asked, why did you take more photos? I was like, I was so cold. I could not take <laughs> off my gloves to take my iPhone out and, and, and take, take pictures. Uh, you know, I, I think it, it's such a, the winter is such a different experience. I think for a couple of reasons, I think, you know, the events are different. Like when you go to mountains and what you can see and what, what you can't see, I think you want to look at different events, say, I either enjoy the kind of the energy and spirit of being there, even if I can't watch as much of it. Um, and then there's other events that, that, you know, just like speed, you know, I like, like speed skating and just hearing it, it reminds me a lot of, of track cycling, right? Which is you just hear them kind of whirring around the eyes, just like you kind of hear the, the bikes and you just, you know, it's such a great kind of visceral like experience that you have, not just what you're seeing, but also kind of what, what you're hearing as well. But I think Pyeongchang was, was not well attended as well. It was, it was different because it was in a pretty remote area. Right. So up in the mountains was was pretty remote. The venues were pretty spread out. And then once you got down into Gangneung, uh, where you had, uh, you know, more of the kind of indoor events, those were clustered. There was a nice park and you can go there. And I think one of the things that's very different about the Winter Games experience is that for used to going summer games, usually the medal ceremonies are there within the actual event um, or shortly thereafter. Maybe it's stacked, you know, morning and evening. You know, what's different with the Winter Games is that yeah, every night they go to what, you know, the park or wherever that may be, and they have that celebration there. And that was a very different experience. Some parts I liked about it, some parts I didn't like about it. Do you remember sort of 
what the atmosphere was like that day in the town, sort of just the streets aligned, as I was saying before. I remember that vividly. So, I mean, was it a similar thing there? Like people on the streets giving flags, kind of like cheering everything along. the Back when we could have crowds, Donna, remember what that was like? Lots of crowds and, and schools, schools, total schools and children would come out with flags and they just lined the streets and yelling USA. And uh, it, it was it was amazing. Like I said, because it was post 9-11, it really meant a lot to a lot of people. I mean, it just, they donated some of the torches to the fire departments uh, in New York. And it was, I don't know, it was, it was just amazing. I, I met a lot of really terrific people, very interesting people. And my husband and I decided instead of driving the 300 miles back, we'd stay in Paso Robles area. So we stayed the night. And in the morning I got up and I, I walked out to the lobby to get a cup of coffee and some woman is saying, oh my gosh, it's you. Would you sign my paper? And I'm looking at her like, who are, who are you? I was on the front page of the paper. That's wow. Wrong. wow. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> oh, torch carriers. I don't know. Maybe they like my red. I had red hair at the time. So maybe <laughs> they thought my hair looked like a flame. <laughs> That's a good connection. I, I like that. Wow. Yeah, I think it definitely has increased for sure. I think people are starting to really realise the potential of the sport. And I think that's what draws people into it and what draws the right crowd into it. You know, that mentality of like, I want to be the best. And shooting is one of those sports where you can get to a, you can get to a national level, so you can get to a national best level quite easily, but then getting to that international best level is, you know, a whole nother environment. So they get addicted to that kind of, you know, them trying to get to that level they get addicted to that work so i think it's definitely it's definitely growing as a sport and then you know with everything like streaming services and um just like internet you know like you know watching finals wherever and now with covid as well we shoot together from different states like i'll be competing in melbourne competing with guys from canberra guys from brisbane guys from perth like over zoom so i think with technology coming in as well i think it can definitely grow and it has grown in Australia for sure. Now I need to follow up on that. How on earth do you compete on Zoom? Are you literally just setting some targets up in the backyard and putting a, a camera, <laughs> literally shooting at a camera or something? On no, 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 no. Um, so I'll go to the range um, with the coach and they will have a judge dedicated to the range. And then the judge will go and approve the targets, approve the shots and then send the scores through online. And then the wow. Zoom camera, the Zoom camera is just facing us so that the judges from the other states can see that I'm actually shooting as well. Wow. That's insane. Like, that's something that I didn't even think was possible, that you can kind of have these competitions in different parts of the country over, over Zoom like that. Yeah, that's yeah. all kinds of crazy. Yeah, I don't think I don't think they'll ever make it an international thing, or like, a, like a sanctioned international thing, you know, like World Cups or anything. But I think they've definitely had it for fun. Like, you know, Singapore have invited us to a couple of international competitions online and stuff like that. And I think it's definitely a good fun way during COVID to still stay together and still shoot together. Cause I can't think of many sports in which you could do that. I mean, it's no, no. Like target, but I mean, archery, maybe you could like yeah. sort of, those sort of sports, but I mean, you're not going to run the hundred meter sprint like over zoom, are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, I think from what I've heard, like some swimmers and like athletics have tried to run together, like, but like they've just, it's been too hard for them because the conditions are different. You know, mm. the ass track in Brisbane is, you know, sunny and dry where in Melbourne it's wet 
So it's just, it's very different. And um, I think shooting is one of those lucky sports that actually worked out all right. And we do Zoom competitions quite regularly now. Yeah. Kind of adds a whole other element to the idea of online gaming, basically. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. Definitely. Yeah, kind of literally taking that to that next level. sort of fun memories from around the village or just kind of soaking up that atmosphere at what it was to be an Olympian? Um, it's, it's very hard to say. Like I just, just the whole, the whole memory itself is what you need to soak in. You can't, you can't forget parts, unfortunately. Like it's just, it's just, you're there and you're soaking everything in to the point where it's like, you won't ever forget, you know, little moments. Like I won't, I don't think I'll forget being the same lift as like Ash Barty or like, you know, having a chat with Patty Mills or, you know, like getting into the lift and like Della Dover, Patty Mills, Joe Ingalls, just all going up to the same level I am because wow. they look like a floor above me. You know, like it was just insane stuff like that. And oh, you want to, you want to like, you know, fanboy, you want to like go crazy <laughs> and be like, Jesus, you know, these, you guys are amazing. But at the same time though, you're like, you're all there almost as equals. Like, yeah, it's, you They're are equals, teammates. but like, yeah, yeah. Basically teammates. So it was really strange like doing that. And I think, yeah, just creating moments like that. It's just, it's just incredible. Like to be able to create those moments like that. So I don't think I'll ever have a particular moment. I think just all of it, it's just going to be locked away in my brain. Cause that conversation starter, I can imagine you, you get into that lift. I mean, you clearly know who they are, but you're there as well. And same clothes there wearing Australia, you got the Olympic rings on you. I mean, is it kind of like a bit of a, you know, Patty Mills, you go, oh, you know, what sport are you in? Like, you know, kind of just have a bit of a conversation and kind of like, how have you found it? You know, things like that. Yeah. Like I actually did joke around there. Like I got into that lift and I was like, oh, so what do you boys do? And like, <laughs> they were like a little bit taken back. Like, oh, like we're on the basketball team. And it's like, oh yeah, I'm like, I'm fucking with you. Of course I know who you guys are. <laughs> um, and, then they, they, and then they asked me like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm shooting, blah, blah. And yeah, you know, to them, I probably look like some kind of like official or physio or something because my body's not, <laughs> not not a perfect athlete, not peak athlete. But um, yeah, it was it's pretty incredible doing stuff like that for sure. What was that experience like? Your first ever international event, I believe, the two thousand seven World Youth Championships. You, you walk away with a gold and a bronze. Not bad for your first competition, but I mean, just kind of lining up there, Team USA emblazoned on you. I mean, kind of that must be a pretty special feeling through all those sports you're doing to kind of be there on an international stage representing your country at only the age of seventeen. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So to be very honest, I was not even aware of what world youth championships were. I, I had no international experience. Uh, again, at this time, I was still playing uh, soccer, right? And so um, I, I went to a, a trials and didn't have my passport, Was not didn't even know it was a qualifying uh, competition and and won the competition. And, the, you know, we had to do team processing to get ready to go to Czech Republic. Uh, and I, I I was not even aware of what the team processing was. And so actually my mom had to, to send out my, my passport via FedEx, you know, overnight it. Um, so I could actually declare that I would go in this competition, but, you know, for me, it was just, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do track and, and um, give it my all. But at the same time, you know, my passion was soccer and I just thought this would be a great way to stay in shape for that. Um, went over and, and, you know, got, got overseas and, and, 
got to this village and again, everything was very new, but it, it's very, my mindset was completely different than, than what it is now. Right. So I would have been thinking then about the travel, the jet lag, um, you know, how to adjust the training, making sure that my training was, was on par that, you know, the few days before I got, uh, got there and, and a few days before my competition, making sure I have massages and, and all these things. None of these things were relevant at that age. When you're 17, you're like, do I have candy in my bag? Um, you know, do I, did I pack my Game Boy? Uh, and, and, you know, are, are there going to be girls on the team? Right. So yeah. this was really my focus. Uh, went over there one and, and, and came third. And I just thought, you know what, maybe there's something there. Maybe there, it is more than just a hobby. Uh, and so I think this was really my aha moment for my career. I definitely see that. I can't imagine coming back to to soccer and going, "Hey, coach, yeah, I've done pretty well in my preparation for the team. I've just gone and won a gold and a bronze at the World Youth Championships in athletics." Does that does that help me? Like, you know, get a starting <laughs> lineup on the team and get me better progress? I mean, I don't know how that kind of uh, the coach feels about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it definitely helped me uh, get off the bench. No, 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 it, you know, it definitely gave me, um, you know, some some perks. And the coach said, "Hey, look, you're fit." But my my dad actually said, "Look, why don't we go and and pursue do this full time because maybe we can get a scholarship with it. You know, he, he was very happy with the idea of maybe not have to, to pay for college. So, um, you know, that worked out really nicely. I started getting recruited and, and doors started opening. I don't usually like to ask the what if scenarios for, for our guests who have gone on to great success in the sport that they ultimately chose. But I mean, had you stuck with soccer, I mean, kind of what were the prospects? Were, were there prospects for you to go forward to a World Cup? Like, were you sort of on that radar that potentially that could have been achieved? No, I, I really don't think so. I think my passion was really there. You know, I've, I've, I played it all my life. Um, and so it, it was an absolute love of mine. Um, you know, I love the team camaraderie, traveling, everything that, that went with the sport. But as I said, my ability to not match up with my passion. Um, you know, it was never a day that my dad didn't say, you know, go, go in, in, and juggle, go, go get some touches on the ball. I was, I was doing this day in, day out, but I, you, some, sometimes you just don't have it. Right. But the things that the, the ability I did have was with, with the athletics. And, and this was something that I was, you know, openly saying I was doing part-time I was doing just to stay in shape for soccer. Right. But um, when, when I had the success, it was like, maybe I'm, I'm actually walking through the wrong door. Maybe I need to reevaluate um, what I'm doing and, and why I'm doing it. But yeah, at the end of the day, if you love something like that's, that's just tough. It was tough to walk away from that. It turns out I think you made the right decision there, Christian. Just, just you know, <laughs> yeah. possibly. That you- After that year, I, I was still physically in a, a pretty good spot in the squad, but I, I just wasn't rowing well. I wasn't mentally in a good space, and I'd sort of, because of my sort of internal frustrations, I'd become probably quite abrasive um to to the coaching staff and the selectors and staff and i i ended up getting dropped from the national training center um and so i said so this was at the end of 2019 um and so i found myself in a position where i was like oh, I, I, could, I could probably probably quit here and no one would really ask any questions um but i, w- I went back across to actas um over the road uh, the act high performance um squad which are, who I, where I trained with for a couple of years right at the end of school. Um, and I just really, I, I spent two weeks just kicking around, not really doing much training, but just just having a bit of fun in the single. And I really like rediscovered my love for the sport, as cliche as that is. But um, I just had my head to the grindstone for such a long time. I've been overlooked by selectors every every stroke of my 
stroke of my training and I just had this opportunity to just go away and do what I wanted to do and um, try to make this rowing thing my own. And so I sort of decided, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have a, have a bit of a crack at this and see, see what we can make of this and try to try to prove the, try to prove those people wrong who, who dropped me from the, dropped me from the training center. Um, and right at that time, Actas got a new, new coach. Unfortunately, the, the previous coach, Nick Garrett, um, passed away just before I came back to Actas, which was a huge loss for the ACT rowing community. Um, but I, I sort of came in at a time when we were, we were getting a new, new young coach, Dave Fermano, who, who had, and he still does have so much energy to put into athletes. And he, he really sort of bought into what I wanted to do with open arms and um, sort of tried to afford me any opportunity he could through the ACTAS program. Um, so across the, that 2019-2020 season, I, I really worked away. Um, and my motivation across that year was really like to try to prove them wrong and do do what I could to show that, I don't know, try to validate myself somehow, I guess. Yeah. Um, but by the time we got to trials, I was performing much better than I had for any year. I was rowing much better. I was physically in a better better place across the board than I had been in any previous years. But I still I was still quite offside with the selectors, believe it or not. Um, when your motivation is to prove them wrong, you don't tend to endear yourself to them um, anymore. Um, and so I didn't I didn't put myself in a particularly positive position when it came to selections and um, rowing selections is a pretty pretty challenging thing. You've got to you've you've, you've got to put yourself in a position where you they want to select you effectively and i i hadn't to the reality was i hadn't done that i hadn't sort of i hadn't made it clear that i was ready to buy into what what their team was going to look like um and i did i didn't get selected for the boat in 2020 um and then i was like okay i'm done quit that's the that's the olympics over and then obviously covid hit um and we're in lockdown for four months and I didn't, I didn't do any training for those four months. I just rode my bike a few times a week. Um, and as we we're coming to the end of that, that lockdown back then, um, Dave Romano came up to me again. and was like, all right, are, are you going to do this again? I was like, absolutely not. This is ridiculous. I didn't get selected last year. And he was like, I, I reckon, I reckon we can do, I reckon we can do some of these things better. I reckon there's a real opportunity for us here. Um, and so I, I put, a, put a lot, um, I, I guess I guess not not getting selected in 2020 was like a, a near death experience for me in a way, like in inverted commas. Yeah. Um, in the 2021 was an opportunity that shouldn't have been there, um, and so I, I could sort of approach the year in a way that no, nothing really mattered. Everything was a bonus. Um, every every opportunity that I got was an opportunity that shouldn't shouldn't have really existed, um, and so I put a lot of work into expressing to the the selectors that I was willing to buy into to their to their boat and be a part of the team and um, try to buy into what what they wanted to happen with the program, um, while also in the background being an actor, doing my own training, doing something completely different, doing half the training they were doing, um, but rowing rowing better, getting really good guidance and support, and trying to trying to get the most out of myself. Um, physically and mentally and put myself in the best place to um, be selected. And then I, I started going very fast at the time trials in the, in the December in 2020. Um, and then we came into trials and I think I came, 
I think I came third in the single Scarlet Trials, which for me was a pretty good result. And the the two guys that beat me, Caleb and um, Caleb and Cam, were were really flying. So I really put myself in a good position to to get selected in the quad there. And um, across the trying process in the next next couple of months, I I I got myself selected in the stroke seat of the quad, um, which the, the stroke seat is a seat that everyone else follows. Um, so you've got you've got a lot of responsibility in stroke seat to set up the rhythm and the stroke in the way that's going to be really conducive to everyone else. And I think the the time that I spent over at Actas working with Dave Fermano had really put me in a position where I was rowing in a way that I, I really understood and and I knew would make the boat go fast and I could sort of instill that confidence in the rest of the boat from from that seat from that seat in stroke seat. Yeah. What an incredible story to kind of think that had the pandemic not happened, we might not even be speaking today, Luke. Like that that's incredible. I mean, how how do you feel when you get that official confirmation that you're on that squad, you're going to the Olympics, kind of after everything that you just endured, where you essentially had thrown the sport away had it not been for this pandemic? Um yeah, like it 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 just all felt like a bonus. Like um I I've never sort of rode or raced with sort of such, I guess it sounds a bit cliche, but such sort of inner pieces I have for the last for the last year because ev- everything just sort of wasn't meant to happen. So every time an op- another opportunity comes, I'm almost like surprised. I'm like, all right, sweet, like why why not? Let's 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 have another go. Let's let's take this another step. Um, and I I, know I never I never really believed that I'll get there until until I think we we crossed the line of our heat. Um, and we we qualified through to the final. I just I just remember sitting there thinking like it's pretty sick that we qualified through to the final. But wow, I just I just made it to the Olympics, and I've, I'm a, I'm a part of this now. No one can take that away from me again. Obviously, a large part of gymnastics too is say you're on the beam and you've got someone on the floor, you've got music, you've got crowd going off, you've got distractions. You're obviously working through all of that uh, at different yeah. competitions. Was it a bit unique in in Tokyo without the crowds? Kind of maybe there wasn't as a bigger distraction, given that you're maybe not having that crowd aspect. And is that kind of jarring because you're sort of like so used to having to block out the crowd noise and things like that when you're on one apparatus versus somebody else competing at the same time? Yeah, um, it was a little different. Like we, Emily and I went in knowing we weren't going to have a crowd. So we had prepared ourselves um, during podium training. We kind of got used to the surroundings of empty stadiums, um, just athletes on the floor, no real officials. Um, so when it came to comp, like we were fully ready. Um, we knew what was going to happen and what we were expecting. So yeah, and once we're on the comp floor, like I know that I zone in, so I do not look at the crowds. I don't know what's going on on other apparatuses. So it wasn't a big difference for me. Um, but yeah, like having a crowd, especially like for floor when you need that little bit more adrenaline, I do thrive off a crowd. So that was a little different, but I, I had Emily in my corner. I had all the Australians. So um, yeah, that was a big help. I also. There was one like memory that I will never forget. When I started my floor routine, I presented to the judges and there was this huge Aussie flag waving behind them. And I was like, who, who is that waving that flag? And I was like, that's such a strange thing because no one's actually meant to be in here. 
And then so I was, I was like, okay, that's a sign. Like I'm going to be, I'm going <laughs> to do this really well. I'm going to nail it. And yeah, it was probably one of my best floor routines of my life. So, wow. <laughs> it's so where did the flag things. come from? Did you find I out? Have, no, I actually have no idea. Wow. Maybe one of the judges sneakily was like, yeah, this is, we're going to show some allegiances right now. Screw, <laughs> screw impartiality. We're going to throw this. Go, Georgia. This is what we want. <laughs> Maybe. And also, um, the Australian chef de mission in Chesterman, he was, um, supporting us in the crowd. And Emily was like, um, I heard, I think it was Ian on the beam. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, he's just up there. I was like, oh my gosh, like that's actually <laughs> insane. <laughs> wow. Which I mean, must be, must make it feel pretty good though, that he's, he's obviously going to go out and see as many events as he can and support the Aussies, but he's there yeah. that day supporting you and Emily. It's such a smaller team, obviously kind of, it's only the two of you. So that, that must be a pretty special, that there's the big boss. There he is. He's watching us. Yeah. It did feel really nice that he, yeah, took time out of his day to come and watch us and, yeah, even like cheer us on. So it was an amazing moment, I guess, and feeling that, yeah, we had actually achieved this dream and we had an amazing supportive team around us. Then we had the IC board come in um, and I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things that, you know, we're all on, we're all on tender hooks here and Someone gets up to the lectern and he says, first of all, we would like to thank all of the bidding cities. We would like to thank Beijing. The Beijing contingent leap up out of their seats, <laughs> cheering. <laughs> that was the announcement. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Sheepishly. Sit down again. <laughs> we would like to thank Berlin. And then he goes through. <laughs> and then he goes through the spiel. We have heard some tremendous... <clears throat> and, and I'm going to do this... And please don't edit down this time. This is, no. this, is, this, is re- this is real. News edited it down. And this is how it actually happened. So Samuel's up there. He's got an envelope in his, um, in his jacket. Um, and he says, we regret there can be only one winner. And he takes the envelope out of his jacket. And the winner is, and he takes the envelope and he opens the envelope and he pulls out a bit of a paper and he turns it round and he reads it. And the winner is Sydney. Mm. 17 seconds. Wow. Wow. That's how long we were waiting. And the joke goes around. The reason why it took 17 seconds is that um, Samranch had never seen Beijing spelt like that before. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so so he says Sydney. And, you know, he was seeing the news footage. We are all leaping out of our seats. And this is not a leap of joy that's a leap of relief wow that we didn't screw up that we we beat the naysayers so many times when we're out filming this stuff uh, the bid would would get hector saying you're wasting your time mate Beijing is a lot of time it's all coca-cola you're, you're kidding yourselves it's a waste of money <laughs> and I thought, oh. 
So we, oh, thank God, thank God, we're proven right. Yeah. So we're jumping up now. I've got Kieran Perkins next to me. He's a he's a big he's a big dude, as you can imagine. He's a big dude, and he's he's jumping up and down. I'm jumping. Up. We we both got tears running out of our eyes. He's got tears running out of our eyes. I said, <clears throat> um, I said, Kieran, this is this is as close to winning a gold medal as I will ever get. <laughs> he looks at me. Says David, mate, this is a million times better than gold. Said, you can't say that. What do you mean? He said, when you win gold, you're mostly winning it for yourself. We've just won it for Sydney. Wow. <laughs> we go, wow. You wow. Know, the waterworks gushing. Jeez. Absolutely gushing. Meanwhile, next to us, you know, we, we get to know all the other bidding cities. Next to us, all the people from Manchester. And they are distraught. They're in tears. You know, they knew they had an outside chance, but they're in tears. You know, they come to the end of the road. And a couple of guys, a couple of people came up to us and said, thank God you beat bloody Beijing. (laughs) (laughs) No one seemed to want Beijing to win except for Beijing. If there's one (laughs) consolation, you beat Beijing. Um, And... It was, as you can imagine, the most amazing. The parties on in Monaco that night, all the um, supporters and corporate sponsors and sponsors and stuff. And um, I went up to, we went to the parties and just thought, you know what, we, this is odd. You know, for a moment it was our victory. We go to the party and realize, no, it's not our victory. This is everyone's victory. Mm. Uh, we 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 played a role in it, but this is a victory for everyone, and that is is just so humbling to know that we we've, we've done this for for Sydney, for Australia. It's gonna it's gonna be have a massive impact for the for the city in a way that goes way beyond. And I and I started to realise this as I as I was doing all the six months' work it goes way beyond a running, jumping, swimming festival. It, what this did, the bid and then the games, I believe transformed the way Sydney siders and Australians think of themselves. Mm. That we're up on a world stage. We beat the world to something um, in an Australian way, doing it our way and pulled off one of the best Olympics ever. Well, still is, according um, to no IOC president has topped what Samarant said, so it still no, technically no. is, right? <laughs> so it technically is, but, you know, a um, few glitches here and there, but it was bloody magic, and mm. Sydney and Australia did it. Um, and, you know, the bid was the first part of that process, but pulling off the games in such a fashion, God, we, we just, every time we're feeling low about stuff, just Think of that. Just think of what we all did, um, what the whole of Sydney, the whole of Australia did to do that, and we can do it again. Um, yeah. It's it's a real it's a real le- life le- life lesson for me. It's, it's been with me all my life, but a, I think it's a terrific lesson for um, for us all in in Australia in Sydney that you know punch. We're, we're kind of getting used to punching above our weight, but this is. This was way above our weight. It yeah. was the most remarkable thing to be part of. 
Have you, have you tried to get free? Like, I always ask this. Do you, you try and get free stuff? Like, can you walk into a store with an Olympic medal around your neck and maybe, you know, get a better table at a restaurant or, you know, free fries <laughs> or something like that? So I have a couple of stories. I haven't tried to get free things with it, but <laughs> there have definitely been some folks, you know, my, my wife and I crossed the border. We went up to to see my parents shortly after I returned from Tokyo. And the, our first stop was Tim Hortons. And yes. we walked in and she, she said, you have to wear your medal inside. And so we walked in and the gentleman behind the cash register, his jaw just about hit the floor. And <laughs> he was so filled with excitement. And after confirming that, yes, it was an Olympic medal, he he said, oh my goodness, you, whatever you want, it's on us, it's on, it, on us. <laughs> And he turned to his associate and he said, right, right. Um, so that, that was pretty cool. Tim just bits, to boxes of Timbits, I'm guessing. Yep, <laughs> yes, right? yes, absolutely. So, yeah, to see the, the excitement uh, in that moment was pretty cool. And uh, there have been a couple of times where I've been out with some friends grabbing dinner, grabbing a beer, and my my friends go out of their way to embarrass me and put me on the spot and and make sure that the server knows that there's an olympic medal and an olympian in their in their presence and um so due to that we have gotten you know a, a round covered or uh you know a freebie here and there and so it's been a, a nice perk I just think you just you being too humble, Joey. Just wear it. Go on. Just go into these places and just be like, "Yes, I would like a Mercedes. Thank you very much. This is an Olympic medal." How polite well, of you to offer that. I could that. get a Mercedes. Maybe I'll is have it, to try that. Hey, I mean, we joke on this show that a Canadian bronze is like a Canadian gold. So, I mean, hey, I'm sure that they're going to be throwing it out to you. So, you know, that 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 kind of was. I've got some fake replicas, which maybe I need to try it, right? Like I can just wear an Australia. I can, I'll put on my Canadian Team Canada sort of stuff I got at the Bay and put on an accent. Like, yeah, I am a Canadian gold medalist. No one in this country would question me. <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect. You can be my test dummy and then let okay. me know what works. Done. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll take a picture of you of me and my Mercedes. I'm like, hey, it works. Here you go. You know? Phenomenal. Exactly. Exactly. Not only does that make you then maybe the first and only Olympian from Neil, also maybe the first and only person from Neil to be on a stamp. So that's uh, also something you can put out there as well. I don't, I don't know if, you know, Jason McCartney was ever on a stamp, but, hey, if he uh, isn't, you then you, you've got that claim, right? Yeah, you never know. I'm just thinking well, the local post office there would be selling out pretty quickly on that day after you win the gold. Uh, like, yeah, give me, give me yeah. the, give me the stamp with Lucy on it. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Dad bought 500, so <laughs> that made, I, was like, what, I was like, Dad, what the hell are you going to do with 500 stamps? And he's like, well, they would never lose value, Lucy. And I was like, yeah, well, true. Yeah. But like it's a valid point but then I got home and they're just like sitting um in my room and I was like you can at least use them like we just, just don't need five hundred dollars worth of stamps just sitting here not being used like uh, so I don't know when you pay your bills put a Lucy stamp on there like yeah anyway. or when you get a bill and it's got a Lucy stamp yeah, and another exactly. bill oh wait there's me uh. <laughs> You will have them in. I guarantee you, in like 10, 20 years' time, you'll be you'll be looking back at this moment in your life, and you'll be going through your merch and all that sort of stuff you got from the Olympics, yeah. and you'll be showing your kids, your grandkids, my look, look at this, mum, grandma was, was on a stamp, stamp. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which nobody talks about. Yeah, Everyone talks about good. the gold medal, but I I, I like talking about the fact that you get to be on a stamp. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, the stamp is really cool. I remember when Kimmy Brennan got her stamp, I was like, geez, that's cool. Like, yeah, yeah. But I think it's like with everything, isn't it? It's like. 
you really, really want something and you go after it and you drive for it, you drive for it and then you get it and you're like, oh, okay, cool. I've done that now. I guess like a bit onto the next thing, you know, yep. it's like with anything, it's like, I really want this boot. I really want this t-shirt. You buy it and you're like, oh, sweet. Okay. Next thing. What's next? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Two stamps. I don't know how many, uh, you know, uh, I guess, I, I mean, I guess Emma and Kaylee probably got a few stamps after Tokyo, but uh, I mean, Thorpey's yeah. probably sick of being on a stamp. He's like, stop putting me on stamps. <laughs> like, come on. I can't imagine if the US ever did it. Michael Phelps, Jesus Christ. US Post would be yeah. running out of stamp printing presses, wouldn't they? <laughs> uh, it is pretty cool though. I think it is like quite a little like Aussie, Aussie trait. That's like, it's one of those little special things that we get as Aussies. And I yeah. think there's, um, there's a few of those things that it, it definitely makes you really, proud to be Australian and, and proud to be a part of that for sure. Now, I've got to ask a question. Obviously, Men's Cox is for synonymous with the words awesome foursome in the history of mm-hmm. Australia. You got the gold first that day. Does that <laughs> automatically make the women's Cox is for the, the now the new awesome foursome? So the way we're doing it, it has been a discussion. And I think, so the way that we're, I guess, marketing ourselves to a certain point is um, together as a team. Um, so it was, I guess, just, I was like, do we go off on our own? Um, but then obviously the boys were like, oh, well, in this day and age, we really do need the girls, um, obviously, <laughs> which is great. Woohoo, go equality. Yeah, um, they sound so excited we about like, that. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were good. No, they were really good. They're like, and look, I was complete. I threw it straight back to them, and I was like, "Yeah, we need the awesome foursome." So, I guess it was this like settle of we'll use each other, and obviously we get along with the guys really, really well. Um, so we're calling ourselves the awesome foursomes with ah, an S. Pluralized. Um, like so it. that's so that's the plan. Um, we'll see how it goes. Like I think you know, ideally, it's like you know, you've got Goulburn Valley. Um, fruit is I was going to ask so that. Well. Does that come back? Mm. Do you get to sing the Peaches Mango Peaches songs? Well, look, I don't know who's going to take over Tonks's line. Um, <laughs> but I think it's hard because I think also back then, obviously, I don't know if they were better well known or obviously Golden Valley Fruits now turned into SPC. Right. Um, and I think obviously it's not as big a company and obviously because of, I don't know, globalization. Is that right? Business management? Um, oh, sure. No, that's not right. <laughs> Don't, don't ask me about anything around else. that. Well, I'm a podcast host, um, Lucy. I'm not the right person to ask that. Well, neither do I. Anyways, to do with how the world is changing and obviously online and everything's big companies are so much bigger, I think it's, you know, maybe we could do like an Instagram ad or something like that, but I think it would be a fast stretch to actually get a I think TV it's ad in prime time slot. But it would be nostalgia. so cool. I think it's, it's so nostalgic. We have contacted yeah. them. Um, we're waiting to hear back, but I think COVID's really put a, a spanner in the works with that stuff. So... It would be cool, and I don't actually know because of the nostalgia behind it. I don't actually know how much they'd have to pay us, but um, we'll see how we go. <laughs> I love that. How much they'd have to pay us? That, that's well, that's like, the big not, kicker. Look, not saying that people shouldn't pay us to do that stuff, but we are rollers. Like we know, yeah. we know that we only have a finite um, amount of time where we are wanted. So. Well, I've got to imagine, I can't imagine that they didn't sell a couple of extra million cans of fruit back in the day due to those ads. So I think they, if anything, they owe rowing more than you owe them. A hundred percent. Like I was talking to the manager we've actually got, he was the guy who got that deal for the original Awesome Foursome. And he was saying, he was like, look, I don't actually think that the original payment 
before it was that much, but the royalties that came through, because I think it just kept being played for years and years after. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we'll see how we go. It would be bloody good to do. Like, yeah. I think it would be yeah. epic. And there's this, like it's the day and age of reboots and kind of let's bring things back. Like I think you just get, think, yeah, get you all on to be, get the original four, kind of do it all together. Well, that's it. Get all 12 of us. It would just yeah. be oh, – it'd be so much fun. But we'll see. We'll see. We all remember those ads. Like it's it's kind of weird isn't Everyone it? you remember it. ads yeah. and you remember those ones. Yeah. Like, yeah, wow. You, you I, I guarantee you more people, if they met James Tompkins, like, hey, you're the guy from the fruit ads, more so than the fact you've got a couple of Olympic, Olympic gold, gold, right? You know? Gold medals, yeah, for sure. What were you feeling in that moment? Because everything that was happening on that last lift, the protest, everything, like, can you even describe all those emotions that you were feeling in those moments? Well, actually, like, yeah, that's really true. A lot of people actually thought I was crying because I was really sad I didn't make that last lift. Um, but that, at, at this moment, I was just really happy. And just, like, all those emotions were there, like, at the same time. It was just I had been training for this moment for such a long time. And, it like, the past two months before this competition – they were so hard, like losing all that weight and all the, all the pressure still for like not knowing if I was going to make it to the Olympic games and still like needed to do all those things and being really stressed as well. And then at that moment, you just know that you actually made it and you are an Olympian at that moment because you, you made one snatch and one clean jerk. And that's all you needed to do. That is all I needed to do there because then I just knew, okay, now I have a place and now I am officially an Olympian and now I can just like enjoy the moment. Now I don't need to think about anything anymore. I don't need to like do really good training sessions. I don't need to think about my food as much. I just can <laughs> like relax a bit. I can enjoy my time. I can like eat whatever I want. And now I can just like, it was just this moment I was like, wow, I actually made it. And I was, obviously I missed that last one. And um, it, was a, it was a little press out. And if I would have made that lift, I, I, I would be fourth. So it would have made like a difference of one place. But for me at that point, I was like, I don't care if I made that lift or I didn't. I really don't care. I am here. I am fifth place which was actually like super crazy for me um and still like i i feel i i had a really bad day that day i re i really had a bad day also my coaches they came to me after my competition and they were like you had a really bad day and we were both like we, all of us were like yeah we know you had a bad day but we don't care at all like you did really well you pushed through it it's it's okay. You still made fifth place, which, which is super crazy. So now then we were like, you had a bad day and you're like fifth at the Olympics. Yeah. Who can say that? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was just like, I don't care. I had a bad day. I don't care. I missed all this lift. I'm just super happy. I'm here. I'm super happy. I'm, I made this competition. And yeah, that was just like all the emotions coming together at one moment. And that's like, I just kept on crying so much. It was, 
But yeah, I was kind of sad at the end that a lot of people thought I was crying because I was sad, but I wasn't because I was just super happy. <laughs> أنا أكون غدوة لبنات سودانيات إنه يجي واصلوا المنشط وكذا فهذه ما بسيطة يعني. She said she feels that she's a special person, especially for getting this very rare opportunity to represent her country. This chance was given from the International Rowing Federation, and it was particularly sent with her with her name. So she was selected among all the rowers uh, uh, from the um, uh, rowing, uh, Sudanese Rowing Federation. So her feeling was very special, and she felt um, she felt very special that her daughter, when she sees us during the championship, uh, she just uh, uh, points and said, "That's my mother in the boat. I want to wow. be in the boat just like my mother when I grow up." So it was very, uh, very like um, a very special moment that her daughter is proud of her. And Fantastic. even she said the time where, and she said even at the time where she was, uh, she was uh, walking and holding the flag of Sudan. And uh, this this moment was very special to her. She felt very proud that she's doing something for her country, and also her daughter. When she arrived, she, she sees her daughter holding the flag of Sudan up just like her mother did. Also, she said when she came, many uh, people uh, uh, be, yeah, like began to ask her about the rowing, and is it like it's a safe, uh, uh, cha uh, like safe sport for ladies to practice, and she wanted to be a role model for every Sudanese uh, young lady. If she would like to practice this sport, and she sees her as a very like um, uh, like fantastic experience, and she feels responsible to always represent a good image of the Sudanese um, young athlete. Fantastic! Wow! And does she would she like to see her daughter grow up and and follow in her footsteps and compete in the Olympics in rowing? هل حتخلي بنتك تشجعيها على الرياضه لما تكبر وتدخل المجال الرياضي؟ اكيد انا يعني من 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 عمر سنتين يعني نزلت السباحه واكيد حكون معاها ودعمها لحد ما توصل هي كمان للاولمبياد يعني في المجال اللي هي حتختاره لما تكبر لكن انا يعني بديت لعب السباحه لانها هي بتفتح لها she said she said definitely I will let I will I will uh, I will let my daughter uh, start in the sports I already uh, uh, registered her at one of the swimming pools and since she's two years old she's been practicing swimming. And uh, that's the first sport that she uh, she started with swimming. And also, I would like just to mention that uh, even Isra didn't mention it, but Isra, her mother was also uh, an athlete. She used wow. to play volleyball, and she was a championship. Uh, she like she uh, she participated in many championships, 
and all her family they participated in several championships so they come from a sport like a very yeah. like family like a very family sport business. family like uh, <laughs> basketball diving rowing football and so on wow that's incredible that's that's absolutely amazing for sure i think her daughter yes, definitely yes. will be yes. going to it going to an olympics one day to go to london i think out of you know all the olympics it was a pretty uh, special olympics to go to um just based on you know how well to put together it was um you know the athletes that were there competing um and then also you know the the things around uh the olympics that don't necessarily focus on competition was um pretty special i mean i got to see the spice girls in the closing ceremony nice. how many people get to see the spice girls live you know not many so <laughs> there certainly <laughs> was a, right there <laughs> yeah it certainly was a memorable moment and i've never seen so many grown men squeal with delight when the spice girls <laughs> came out aside from maybe kylie minogue when she came out for the closing ceremony of uh, com games so uh, yeah. yeah it was you know london was amazing um and felt very very fortunate to have a wonderful experience there. I was going to say, I, I, that, that's that's a good answer that people still react that way to Kylie in Glasgow as well. So, you know, it's that's a difficult one. Like, I mean, I, I'm guessing you're, you mentioned the Spice Girls, but I mean, what was it Kylie like at Glasgow? Kind of, was it up there? Yeah, oh yeah, it was, um, it was very, very good. And um, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, she's just such a, an icon. You know, when you think about Aussie singers, you think Kylie, you think Johnny Farnham. Um, and they just elicit a response, even if you don't necessarily like, I'd very rarely, to be honest, listen to Kylie Minogue's music. Um, but when she comes out and she's got her gold hot pants on and, <laughs> you know, looks amazing for whatever age she actually is, you just appreciate that moment because she's such an entertainer. And those yeah. are the little like things that I think that when you're a hockey player or when you're in a sport that um, sometimes doesn't necessarily pay like a professional sport, um, you kind of wonder why you do it and you do it because you love the game, but you also do it because there's opportunities um, outside of financial game that are really quite special. You know, like you sort of look at the AFL players and yes, while they've got a career financial sort of career and backing, um, you know, to go to Olympic games really is a, a unique experience. Now it'd be great to be able to kind of make a little bit of money at the same time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, going and having the Spice Girls at the closing ceremony, Kylie Minogue, um, walking through the village and seeing Usain Bolt in the flesh and just how much of an amazing athlete and specimen um, he actually is. You know, those are, are things that I guess money can't buy, not to sound yeah. too cliche. What was that? I mean, that was such an odd opening ceremony too. Like, I mean, I guess you've got nothing really to compare it to outside of watching it on TV. But, I mean, what was it sort of like in that stadium walking out to really nobody? Yeah, it was sort of like, obviously, like, you know, that's not, not ideal. But I was sort of like also thinking, like, I could just imagine how awesome it would be. Like, if this was full, this would be going absolutely bonkers. Like, it was like, but it was still like that adrenaline of going through it all. Japanese did it right. Like they oh, full credit to Japan. Like they their volunteers were so excited. Like 
there was like walking before walking into the stadium, it took I think it was about a two hour process. And like the volunteers were like so excited to see everyone for that whole time. And it was just like it was like they yeah, they did it right. It was like, wow. Like Fantastic. you still made it feel special, like when there's no one in the stand still. Yeah. And do you you try and do the whole sneaky like walk around on the edge a little bit so the cameras can maybe pick you up, maybe just, you know, get behind Patty and Kate there and just be kind of, you know, like wave just to make sure that you're getting on, on TV so people can see you? I sort of I sort of did like I was sort of like off center to the left. I got like a few people did see me, but I didn't get like a whole heap of like airtime, so to speak. But um but yeah, because like obviously they they did an order, so like the people that have been to the most Olympics towards the front. But the problem with that is, is the basketballs are the ones that have been to the most Olympics. So you, know, yep. you got six foot seven people walking in front. <laughs> like, oh. um, but no, I was slightly off to the left. I got a couple of pictures, screenshots of me uh, walking through the uh, walking through there from a couple of lads. So great. Um, they did get to see it, but yeah, it was sort of like I sort of like initially I was thinking that, but then like when you are actually in the moment, I saw like stuck in the moment to be thinking to be like oh get on camera yeah <laughs> sort of like just sure. sort of trying to soak it in, soak it in i like that idea that that's kind of how they do it though that they sort of you know up front yeah. these are the the multiple olympia like that's a good way of doing yeah. it i guess I, I didn't realize that's how they did it yeah so that's a, i don't know if they always do it like that but yeah they sort of like did it so then like you know if you've been to your third or fourth olympics you know you know you should obviously get to be in the front so yeah, um, kind of i guess it's like if you i mean they, they can't give the flag bearing position to everyone so it's kind of like well yeah. the next best thing is you're front and center so you can see yeah. kate you can see patty but there you are directly behind yeah. them well i think oh yeah i think kate's been I don't know, she was a fifth one. i think from memory yeah. so yeah yeah that's We have been nominated for an Australian Podcast Award in the Creativity Award category, which is a big honour. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Now, uh, a bit of a shock because this wasn't a category that we actually entered in, but um, <laughs> the judges apparently listened and thought, in some way, we were creative. This is a an award chosen at the discretion of the judges, recognising a single piece of audio so creatively dazzling that it deserves its own trophy. Um, it could be the result of great storytelling, sound design, performance, editing, or a combination of the above. And it's proudly sponsored by the Nova Entertainment Podcast. Thank you, Nova Entertainment Podcast Network. Now, Jared, I messaged you at the time of recording this. It was only a few days ago. By the time we're releasing this, I believe the ceremony is actually on the day we are releasing this, so we get it out just in time. Jared, was there anything better to have someone like Osher Gunsberg basically saying, there's some great podcasts, you should be listening to them. Come on, Andy G is telling people to listen to Off the Podium, Jared. This is a coup for us. It's right up there. The only thing better would be Shane Gould, but um, we'll take Osher. <laughs> you will take Osher. He's part of the Survivor universe. Colin, I mean, how excited were you to I mean, see the clip of, I don't even know who that girl was, but she said we're one of the most creative podcasts in Australia, so thank you random girl and osha i mean how excited were you to wake up to this news uh, especially with my recognition of both of those people um <laughs> all the great work they do <laughs> but uh i i we had, we had entered all the different shows and i think it's not even the first year we've done it and like ah we're not gonna get nominated for anything when i saw it i immediately showed jamie she goes huh that's cool. I'm like, no, no, no. This isn't like some lame blog that says we are, you know, it's not a Czech Slovak reality award. Yeah, the Czech winner Slovak. For Survivor Oz. <laughs> this is like a real thing. Look, it looks professional, Jamie. And she's like, yeah, yeah, that's really good. All right, what do you want for breakfast? <laughs> to put it into but context, I mean, is, there's an actual award ceremony, at the Ritz Hotel. Like, this is a real thing. 
<laughs> I told her, I'm like, hey, if, if we had the money to go over there, we could actually attend a proper awards banquet. Come on. Well, it's got nothing to do with the money on my side of things. Blame our borders. I mean, I, I, I want to go because, like, it's in Sydney and I could go to it as, as nominees. We get a chance to, to go there. But uh, unfortunately... We're never the... getting nominated again. Well, somebody <laughs> couldn't bother to be here to accept their creativity award. The the, the borders just won't allow it. But um, seriously, like, this was a, a big shock. We're, we're, we're thrilled and we're, we're up against some good competition. Um you know, uh, <laughs> we're up against background briefing. Never heard of them. Uh, housewarming, which I not heard of, but I've looked them up and they actually look pretty good. It's basically a bunch of people in a house sharing stories about shared house living, which is pretty exciting. Uh, we're also up against Moon Man in the Morning, which is, I think, a nationally syndicated breakfast show featuring the esteemed Lawrence Mooney. Now, Colin doesn't know who that is, but I think even you know who Lawrence Mooney is, Jared. He's pretty funny. So, And I'm looking here, they've got 45,000 followers on Instagram. So, yep. And uh, Shift Podcast from the Edge, don't know who that is. And Stuff the British Stole, which... I don't know. I, I don't know who any of these podcasts are, but I looked them all up. They've all got about 10 times the followers as we do. So, um, yay, we're the little guys in the big pool. But we did something creatively, which I, to be honest with you, don't know what it is. The audio that we submitted included two clips of commentary from Tokyo, which was our swimming commentary. I think that was the Suck It America. Um, and then it was the sailing commentary with the Pirates of the Caribbean. So... I want to think it's a sailing. I thought that was kind of cool. So, you know, get on board the pirates, Colin. I don't know. You well, you were pumped for that? Yeah, I mean, but little did they know those are the only two creative things we've ever done. Uh, so <laughs> disappointment when they actually listen to the podcast. We, we lucked into it. Jared, if you were a judge, would you be voting more for Suck It America or dun 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 it dun 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 it <laughs> be sailing every day of the week the fact that you're able to make that interesting it's just i mean that's the creativity right there look at i mean look at that if we win this damn thing we're going to send it to the ioc and be like look we (laughs) added music to sailing and we won an award all right imagine what this would be like for the actual olympics well we already have some athletes behind our commentaries like yeah this this is what if we do win or even just be nominated it's got to be for that because athletes are backing us Awards are backing us. Like, we right. need to get into the Olympics now. And also, can we point out that there's, there's six of us nominated in this category. We're, we're very honoured. They don't just award one category. This isn't the Oscars, you know, that the most creative podcast goes to. There's a gold, silver, and bronze. Like, this is very fitting for an <laughs> Olympics podcast that there should be a gold, silver, and bronze. And I hope that they release, like, the order. Like, if we don't get a gold, silver, or bronze, I hope they release it and we were fourth. Because that would yeah. fit in perfectly. Yes. Right? Like, we would take fourth of being just off the podium for off the podium. So it kind of Do you think that way. they're actually nominating us now, though, so it could be appropriate that somebody is off the podium? Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? But uh, time release, the, the award ceremony, December the 2nd, and uh, which, again, at the time of releasing this, uh, this is the day this is out. So if you're listening to this in the morning, you can tune in. Uh, OzPodcastAwards.com, I think, is the website, and you can uh, check it out and uh, have the live stream there. You can watch it and uh, 
I'm sure Jared, Colin, and I will dress up in some tuxes and sit there on Zoom and uh, pretend to the whole like the 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 little ah oh, Moon Man in the morning deserve that absolutely. Can, <laughs> no, I, I'll can just- a Canadian tuxedo? Be worn. Hey, gotta check the dress code. <laughs> I'll do the Joey Tribbiani where I'll be like, what the fuck? They didn't deserve to win. <laughs> like, Moon Man in the Morning sucks. <laughs> Which they don't. Listen to Moon Man in the Morning. It's great. <laughs> I love Lawrence Mooney. He's a funny guy. But uh, all the best to all the other people nominated. Um, this will be the only episode that we do between now and then that hasn't already been recorded. So if we want to drop out any subtle sass to, um, I don't know, shift podcast from the edge. Oh, look at us. We're edgy. <laughs> Stuff the British style. Well, they sold everything. Don't try too hard there with your podcast name. Um, we'll throw some sass. <laughs> Victoria was my first major, uh, yeah, my major uh, senior team, pretty much, uh, especially because being a multi-sport uh, competition, it wasn't just athletics, or it wasn't just a race walking competition. And it was, it, it just blew me away. The village, the opening ceremony, um, the, just things like the dining hall. I actually met my husband in the dining hall of the Commonwealth oh, Games in wow. 1994. There you so, go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah my, my kids often ask me that. They're like, what, where, how? <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, we both like food, so we seem to to hang out. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, I was going to ask, you're on the topic now. How did it happen? Was it like love over breadstick or something like that? Or, you know, what, what we happened? We just spent uh, too much time in the, the, the dining hall. It was, it was sort of a social thing there to hang out in the dining hall after dinner and, and just just meeting other people and um, one of the physios that that actually I was sitting with Kerry when I met him as well and one of the physios um, knew Kerry and then Matt was sitting there and so we just got introduced and then uh, funny, you know, like we saw them out and because the cyclists were a pretty wild bunch of, of people and then at the closing ceremony that I saw this bike streak across the, the closing ceremony and it was a bike that Matt had bought it a second hand or a, a shop or no, he bought it a garage sale near the, the village and the, the boys had bought it and sprayed it. And then one of the New Zealand guys had taken the bike off and rit, ridden across the closing <laughs> ceremony of the track and Matt was sprinting <laughs> after him. Wow. So yeah, it was, um you know, some memories from that as a young, I was, I was 19 back then. So um it was a really, and I think it was a great stepping stone because the Commonwealth Games for us was really serious but it's not the Olympic Games. So you've got that step up that you've got this multi-sport competition that's um, really important, but it's not the Olympic Games. So you get to experience all the same things. And I think being in such an environment as as Victoria, it's a a small island there um, and they really got behind it. They, Mm. the the locals just loved it. And I think that's what makes games. Some, Some of these big cities, they, people are, sort of they like the, the, the games, whether it be Commonwealth or Olympics, but they don't fully support it. And I think some of these smaller areas really just um, get right behind it and enjoy the fact that that their their city is the centrepiece of, yeah. of the, the games. I mean the lead up to to Sochi, sort of through everything that, that you did achieve and, and kind of going back to your point where you're saying you wanted to be on the other side of those boards for that announcement. What was that like then when you were on those side of the boards for that announcement and you were going to the Olympics? You were an Olympian at that point. Oh, it was insanity. I mean, to be completely honest, like I said in 2010 or what we were just talking about, I just wanted to be a part of the action. So for me, it wasn't, my mindset was so about, I don't even want to, 
it was so about the future. It was so like, ooh, in 2018 is like my year, but like now just like soak it up and learn and get the experience of what it's like to compete at a US championships on an Olympic year. And it was my first year competing internationally as a senior. So that also was just so exciting. I was suddenly competing against all of these men that I have, you know, been inspired by and that, you know, I, I wanted to be like, and I looked up to at such a young age. So that was just something that I was embracing and enjoying all of that. So suddenly I, you know, I skated my two programs. I ended up in second place at the U S championships. I got one of the two spots I was assigned, you know, to the Olympic team. And it was like this shell shock yet most exhilarating, exciting feeling. And I just, my parents and I were crying and we were like, how is this happening? This is so cool. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the turnaround is three weeks before mm. like a finding out and being at the Olympic games. And so there's obviously a lot that goes on in between those three weeks um, and a lot of excitement and a lot of media and a lot of wrapping your brain around what's going on. Um, so I just, I took it day by day and tried to take it all in. And added to that, a little viral video uh, went far with your performance, right? So, I mean, that media attention you're talking about obviously accelerated a little bit due to a little Riverdance performance. It, it was unlike anything I could have ever imagined. I remember my brother called, like texted me, you know, after I, I skated and I, I had lots of texts of congratulations you know, congratulatory texts from a lot of people. And then like my brother sent me this random text was like, you have a thousand views already. And then it was like, and then like two minutes later, he was like, it's at 10,000. And then like a few minutes later, he was like, you're at a hundred thousand, a million, two million. And it was like, what is going on? And it was, yes, it was very exciting, very unexpected. You know, when you're living it and you train these programs day in and day out in front of, you know, obviously nobody, <laughs> just your coaches and you know, the empty stands at the rink while you're training, it's definitely, you know, thinking about something going viral or what kind of will spark an audience attention. You know, you are obviously we're trying to perform our best and we're trying to do what we do. But I just remember getting off the ice from that event and my coach looking at me like, oh, this could have been better. You know, like you, you were a little slow here. We will work on this in the future, um, you know, kind of take me through that way. And then suddenly having that turnaround of like the reaction from the crowd and the audience and the way that the media kind of exploded around this program. It was um, quite memorable. It's actually interesting what you say, because I assume that they're there all the way up until the end, which, you know, it makes more sense now why in the all around competition, when Simone does pull out, uh, or makes the decision, you know, what can we do here? You're all of a sudden doubling duties, you know, because you are in the middle of that competition. And now instead of bringing somebody who's fresh in, they're like, hey, Jordan, <laughs> I hope you got a lot of energy today because we're about to double your workload. Uh, <laughs> can you? I'm sure you've told the story many times, but sort of take us through what happened when you found this out, you know, uh, did you have a moment where you panic where you're like, Oh, do I have this in me? Are these the right events for me to be competing? And do I have the energy? Cause I wasn't preparing for this and, and there is no alternate, you know, this is the only choice. Um, I was shocked. Like I was in shock. I was like, 
is this really happening? I honestly thought like she was going to be able to continue. But once she told me, I saw in her eyes and it made me almost like, like I was start, I started crying. I was devastated because I saw in her eyes that she wasn't going to be able to continue. And so when my coach told me, she was just like, Jordan, put your grips on. I was like, huh? Like, you're, you're joking? I already being serious. Like, I'm a little confused. And she was like, no, like, put your grips on. And I was like, okay. So I started putting my grips on. And then Simone came over to us and she told us. And I was like, well, this is, this is what we are going to do here. We're just going to go for it. Just have fun. And so that's when, I think that's when we re- all realized, like, look, we are a team. We fight. We aren't quitters. We're not just going to let something like this bring us down and break us apart because of who we are. Like we're, we're going to go out there and show the world or team USA, no matter what happens. Um, and so I, that's what we did. And I think once we all realize, look, we, we, whatever is thrown at us, like we can be great. And so with her, with Simone's little thing that happened that I wish never happened because I know she, she, she's not a quitter like at all. Like, and that's one thing a lot of people are like, Oh my gosh, she bailed on the team. Like, no, she didn't. She came out there and showed the world. Look, I can also support my team in many different ways. I'm going to be out here. If I was a quitter, I would have just been in the back doing whatever. Like she's not a quitter. She was practicing. She was doing this, that, or the other. So just having her support out there, getting us chalk, telling us like, guys, we got this, like just enjoy the moments. That's somebody that's a hero and inspiration, an idol, a mentor, a sister, a friend, a, sometimes even a mother to us. Like those are the things that a lot of people needed to see. And I'm happy they were able to see that because there's more to her. Uh, and me stepping in those humongous shoes made it even better because I was like, I'm doing this for you. This is for you because I know who you are and you're the, you're the goat. She was the goat for the reason and having her all there and being there, it was amazing. Um, but besides that, I could tell you what was going through my head was what am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) This is crazy. Um, I was just crazy. I was just like, I was really just in shock all the way to the end. It didn't hit me until we, it didn't hit me until before we had to go onto the podium to get our medals. Wow. I was just, Oh my gosh, what did I just do? Like, this is crazy. (laughs) Which it must, is it sort of works on a level of adrenaline? Is it that mentality you're saying about, this is your job. You've got to go out there and you've always got to be prepared for situations like this, where you've just got to put it aside and, and, and perform to the best of your ability. And then that's when that realization hits you about, as you're saying, like what's happening right now, how did this all, how did this all play out right now? Yeah. Like, cause a lot of the things we don't expect, like we don't expect a lot of the things that happen at all. Cause we're so prepared. We're so into us knowing that, yes, I know I can make this routine. This is why I'm here. Or yes, I know I could do this ball and this is cause this is why I'm here. Like there's a lot of things that we were just not expecting in ourselves. And then also like team wise, like we were just like, Oh my goodness. Like this just happened. Like, what do we do? Like we were all like going crazy. But after that it was like, bam, 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 bam. 
meets over get a medal da, 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 and we all just look at each other and we're like <laughs> so what just happened <laughs> like you like are you because i'm confused like i don't even know what just happened but you know we're just gonna take it for the ride and just enjoy it so it was crazy it was really crazy i mean even me just thinking about it now i'm just like wow that was how long ago and we did that like <laughs> that's that's a little scary. <laughs> we talked a lot, uh, what you're saying about Simone's decision. Uh, we talked a lot during the Olympics about what she really did was she made the call that was going to keep you guys in the competition. You know, she kind of reached a point where she realized, you know, I don't want to cost the team this. But then at the same time, she had enough faith in you or the coaches had enough faith in you. Everybody had enough faith that you were going to step up to that. Uh, now, having come out of the qualifications where you didn't perform your best, uh, obviously you had that shock, but did you have any of that worry or, or have you gone through the competitions enough where you realize, you know, you have one bad day, the next day you could be the best you've ever been. I know I was scared. I was terrified. I didn't know what was going to happen, especially going on beam. I was just like, Oh my goodness. And I was last, which made it even worse. I don't think I've ever been so scared in my life. Like that was the most scariest thing. I just wanted to get off that beam so fast, but I knew I had to do it for my best friend and having her support there was amazing. I loved it so much. She was encouraging us so much and it was just crazy just to even like say Simone Biles. She literally was supporting and she was like a coach out there getting us chalk, doing all these amazing things. And, you know, it was all for her. Her decision is her decision. That's what she decided. And that's what we all supported her on. And I feel like a lot of people are understanding now, which is really annoying that it's now you're understanding why you'd rest here and there, but everything happens for a reason. And I do have to say like, kudos to her. Like she is somebody that I wish I could be just to speak up and speak out because that those are things a lot of people are scared to do. And at that moment, she knew what she needed to do, so. As a junior, I was um, actually a singles player. Um, and I've always been, I guess, a singles player, always trained singles and everything as a junior. Um, it was probably not until 2014 at the beginning of the year when the national juniors coach, um, Stuart, um, he approached me and um, he gave me a bit of a, this was during, I think, Oceana Junior Championships. Still remember, I still remember this talk very well because he came up to me while I was ordering food at the canteen <laughs> and um, he he was asking me, you know, oh, you know, what are your plans? You know, what do you want to do? Like, are you looking like, do you want to be part of, you know, the world junior championships? You know, I was just like, yeah. Um, and it was asking me, you know, what my training is like, what I do at training. I'm like, oh, you know, I train a bit of singles, you know, that I normally do that, I train singles and da 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 And um, yeah, and then the next minute he kind of approaches the convo in a, um, it was a very weird sort of way. And at that time I was a bit confused because um, he was like, okay, well, um, I reckon, you know, it wasn't exactly, you know, along these lines, but it was roughly, you know, this is roughly kind of what he said. Well, you know, yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, you know, I reckon, um, you know, 
once you leave here, go home, I think you should just, you know, start training some doubles instead of singles, you know, because, um, hmm. you know, I think that might be quite useful, you know. Um, and then that pretty much ended the convo there. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, that was, it was very, you know, I don't cool know what you were trying, trying to do there, but that was a very weird sort of convo, right? So I walked away and I told every, I told my mates, I was like, I just had a very weird convo. He just said all this to me. I don't know what he's trying to say, but I don't know. And everyone kind of said, oh, that's a hit. I'm pretty sure you made the world junior team now. And I was wow. like, oh, nah, surely not. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and you know, next minute, you know, in a week or so later, I think I got an email saying, I, uh, I made the world junior team. So uh, it was a very weird way of telling me that I've made the team, but I guess that's another thing to, I guess, remember of, you know, so. So you're yeah, on a bit uh, of a different path then that I can imagine you're, you're expecting, isn't it? Yeah, no, it was definitely not something. But I guess that year I did, you know, win the World Junior uh, Nationals in doubles as well. So I guess that played a big part of it as well. Um, but yeah, as a singles and doubles, I guess a lot of people start off with singles, you know, and um, it's probably later down the track where they, I guess, transition to doubles if they... I guess either not like singles or they find that they're a bit better in doubles, um, the more suited for doubles. Um, so yeah, I guess, yeah, we all kind of start off being a singles player and it's probably later down the track where you kind of know whether you're going to transition into a singles player. Ah, uh, sorry, stay as a singles player or transition into you know, a, a doubles player, you know? Um, and I guess for me, 2014 was the year where I kind of transitioned to a doubles player and, since then, I haven't played singles or trained singles whatsoever. So, wow. and I don't miss it whatsoever because it just requires too much of me. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you've got eleven years to kind of just stay on form to Brisbane twenty thirty two to, to yes, experience exactly. that, right? So, oh know. yes, <laughs> it's which, very which tempting. I, which, I was going to say, my... is it seriously something you could strive towards? Like, is that something that realistically, for say a high jumper, that you can still be jumping at that age? Yes, yes, yeah, it definitely can be. Um, and when it was announced, I was like, well, okay, that's that's me done. <laughs> I um, my plan is set. <laughs> I mean, I know that um, life does throw different things in in your path, but. Um, I would absolutely love to to go to the 2032 Olympics again. Yeah, that home crowd experience. And um, we know how Australians get behind sport and uh, it'd be phenomenal. And so even just having an Olympics is something to 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 finish on. And so I think that would be my, my fifth Olympics. And so yeah. I wouldn't be mad about that at all. Well, I mean, we had, we had Matt Denny on recently and he said mm-hmm. he set a goal of five Olympics and it just so happens that that fifth Olympics yeah. will be Brisbane. So, I mean, kind of yes. it's, you know, it's kind of like you, you've got this whole team going there with the athletics uh, crew that yes, they kind of maybe exactly. just all get behind it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the same age as Matt, actually, and he was one of the, the guys who went to the World Youth with me and so was at, has been at the um, the Olympics with me and, being, and things like this. And so it's pretty cool, uh, pretty cool to see. And so, yeah, I'm similar boat. I would love to be able to, to do 2032 Olympics and um, finish there. And, and historically, um, people can do high jump to, um, I mean, I'll be 36 at the time and you can do that. Um, say, for example, in, in Rio 2016, the winner, she was 37, I believe, wow. at the time. Okay. And so, um, and had retired, I think, twice, but came back. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Um, so you yeah. can give it up for a couple of years, come back again. Like you know, you've got a few years yeah, to do just, some things. Yeah, yeah, I've already, I've already quit. I've already quit the sport once, so <laughs> I've got room for another one. Exactly. You know, no, just keep yeah. coming back. You know, why not? Exactly. John Farnham of High Jump, just you yes, know, exactly. <laughs> always retire and, and and come back. Do you ever talk to the bar? Do you ever be like, hey, like you, like this is you and me right now and I'm going to clear you. Like this, this is, I've had enough with you, you know, fucking me around right now. This is going to happen. Yes. Like, I mean, is it kind of, is, yeah, do you get sort of pumped up and look at that thing and hate it when you want to clear it? Yes, yes, definitely. Actually, there's probably the only thing that I tend to say, especially if I'm on my third attempt to clear it or things like this or if I'm at training and I frustratingly can't clear a heart and I'm, the only thing that I've tended to say to myself is, or say to the bar, "You're my bitch, bar." <laughs> Something along, "I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna clear you." <laughs> You're my bitch. I like that. I'm never gonna watch High Jump the same now. All of a sudden, it's like you're, you're my bitch, bar. You know like, what's this is going, it. Yeah. You know what's going through. Right? <laughs> now I know what Nick was writing in that diary. Like, you're my oh, bitch, no, bar. No. You're my bitch, bar. Like, come on. <laughs> no, I think, I think no. I think Nicholas maybe. Saying things a little bit nicer. <laughs> she's, um, she's an angel, but I'm, yeah. <laughs> I like it. No, that 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 works. You, you could you could have like so much. You could have merchandise of that, Eleanor, like t-shirts, like high yeah, jump, like that. you know, like a, a YouTube channel, podcast. Welcome to You're My Bitch Bar. Uh, you know, like it's. <laughs> I'm seeing merchandise opportunities here. It's yeah, great. I'll have to get onto it. Yeah, I'll have to si- sign you into the contract because you're the no, idea. I'll, I'll be your manager. I'll, I'll kind of help okay. out with the marketing side Wonderful. of things. You know, kind of sounds uh, we'll, good. Sounds good. We'll, we'll get that on the way up there. When you're standing on on the podium with that medal around your neck, do you do you just take a moment to kind of go over that journey? Kind of, you know, just take a deep breath and go, okay. Now, uh, people can stop asking me questions about Rio. I've got this bronze. Uh, all that hard work's paid off. Uh, you know, now let's go on to the next fight to save the event for the, the next games. Yeah, so funny. You talk about like, oh, it's, it feels like it must have been destiny and something like that. And, you know, when I think back to that final 2K of the race, sitting in fifth, in fifth place with 2K to go, I really would have loved the positive frame in my mind of being like, no, like this medal is destiny. Like all that was in my head was, first of all, Vieira, the, the Portuguese athlete, he's three seconds ahead of me. He beat me by three seconds at Worlds in 2019. You can't lose this guy by three seconds again. And managed to get ahead of, ahead of him with a kilometer to go. And then it was just like, oh, crap, Evan, you're in fourth again. Like, you can't finish fourth again. And it was completely, you know, no sports psychologist is going to tell you. This is, the, you know, this is the framing that you should be giving yourself. But I was, you know, it, it was, and I reflect back on those last, you know, last eight minutes or so. I was very self-deprecating and just, you know, I would have loved to be like, come on, Evan, this is your destiny. Like you got to get this medal. It was just like, Oh, come on. Don't finish fourth again. That was, that was agonizing last time. You can't let that happen again. Um, so certainly that, I mean, that, that feeling that, that washed over me, uh, right away was one of, uh, of sort of contentment. I was just kind of like that, you know, that, that, that wave of whoo. All right. I did the thing, you know, the thing that I set out to do when I was 10 years old, I've done the thing. I, no one can ever take that away from me now. Uh, cool. Like it was this sort of, you know, brought me up to this, instead of having this level of euphoria, it kind of just brought me up to this like level of like, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but just this, this great feeling of 
everything feels worth it. Like everything I've done since I was 10 years old, like feels, feels like worth it. And I think even if I hadn't won the medal, I'd still have reflected back on that in the days and, and weeks after the race and, and came to that same conclusion. But I, I, I'm pretty hard on myself. I rarely have a race where I feel good. Like, I feel like I did everything I possibly could or, or that I didn't miss some sort of tactical move or, or, or something or other. And, um, usually that's right away. Like you cross the finish line and I'm just like, damn, should have done this better. And, and that certainly came in Tokyo, it's, you know, a couple hours after the race, it was like, ah, oh, crap. Could I have done better? Um, but you know, that, that first hour, that, that very first hour after I crossed the finish line, I think for one of the first times ever, I didn't have that. I had just this feeling of like, Oh man. Yeah, I did it. Uh, which was really cool to have. And then standing on the podium, uh, the next day, cause our, our medal ceremony wasn't until the next, the next night, uh, they had to fly us back to Tokyo from Sapporo. And at that point in time, I, you know, as you said, reflected back on, okay, now we gotta go to fighting for, for, to get our event back. And, um, so for me, standing on the podium, the best, the best moment for me that I get to look back on is when I got handed my medal and my, um, flowers by two IOC executive board members. I got to look them in the eye and tell them that, you know, you made a horrible mistake getting rid of my event. And, um, that, you know, I, I feel, I feel like you should have to live with that decision. Um, wow. and, and to me, that was so powerful because I can yell on Twitter all day long, you know, <laughs> shout from the rooftops, <laughs> whatever, like it, no one's listening really. Um, but to get to say it to the decision makers face to face, um, you know, meant, just as much to me in this journey as, uh, as getting to put that metal around my neck. We have to talk about craft dinner. Cause it was, uh, I think it was the morning of the opening ceremonies. I'm waiting for it to start. And I see the commercial air the first time, which if, if anybody hasn't seen it, try to look it up, but it's basically you walking while eating and very politely. Hello. This guy, one of the great, I told him one of the greatest guys sent the video to Ben and our other co-host. Loved it. One of the greatest right. commercial, greatest commercials I've ever seen. Uh, but uh, I think there was so much more of a heavy presence with like major corporate sponsors with Tokyo compared to other games I've seen. But uh, I mean, this has to be huge. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily associate craft dinner uh, with Olympics necessarily, but to have a brand that big, I mean, how did this come about? Was it, was it something that they came to you? Or, uh, did the Olympic committee say, we want to spread some of these corporate sponsors around? Let's, Evan's a craft dinner guy, you know, it just matches their brand. <laughs> essentially, essentially it was just that. I mean, so craft, craft is, is a, is a COC is a Canadian Olympic committee partner. So, you know, on, uh, there, they have the ability and the, the leverage to use all the, the assets that other brands can't use. Um, but basically it came down to, I got, a, I got an email wanting to set up a call to chat to me. I was like, this feels like a joke. <laughs> like, <there's, laughs> like this is a, it's a really niche prank, but it still feels like a prank. Uh, and basically, you know, got on a call with these with the, with the group and, and they basically said, Hey, look, like, I don't know. We think that race walking is pretty cool. Like we think it's, it's, it's different. Um, it's, 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 unique um but we think it has value and like more importantly like we think you as a race walker have value 
And I was kind of like, holy crap, like all I've been trying to do for my entire career is like convince people that I have value and that race walking has value. And, and you're now coming to me saying that you, 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 you know, you think I have value. Um, it was so cool. And, and then just the fact that it was a genuine partnership, right? Like I grew up eating craft dinner and hot dogs, uh, with my, with my parents and yeah, as a poor university student, um, you know, every, you know, so many, so many of us, we grew up on craft dinner. So, um, it's some, it's not like, um, you know, it's not like anything we were doing was a lie where that was a big part of it for them. Like they went to the COC and got a, a basically a short list of athletes, I think. And basically what they said was like, well, we're going to know if it's not changing. Like we're going to know if we open up their Instagram and it's just hundreds of pictures of salads that this isn't going to work. And then it was kind of like, Oh, okay, well you, that's what you're looking for. Like half my Instagram story feed is meat and donuts. So uh, I think we're going to be okay here. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, you have the story from London, you know, you just miss out the Pan Am games, you have your, your great victory. Rio was a completely different matter. I mean, uh, really, I think you were doing quite well. And then you were, you were hit with an illness or something like that. What was that? Yeah. So right before my quarterfinal match, um, I ended up like, and I had everything ready. I had made weight. My bag was packed. Everything was ready. I was fighting the next morning at 11 o'clock. And then I just started to feel a little sick and I was like in bed, it was about 10 PM and I was just thinking, okay, maybe it's just nerves. Like, okay, I'm at the Olympics. Like I'm just maybe going through, I don't know, like nerves. Um, and then I got up and I got sick and then I thought, okay, like trying to mentally tell myself like, I'm good now. Like got that out of my system, just going to go to bed. <laughs> and then I just like kept waking up and getting sick. And after the third time I was like, okay, I think I'm actually sick and I should probably call my coach. Um, cause I remember he told me that there was a doctor on site. So I called him and then right away they brought me to the doctor. I ended up coming down with some sort of like tourist virus. Um, so they brought me over to the hospital, um, in the morning and I had lost like five pounds of fluids on top of like making weight. So I was like <laughs> completely dehydrated. Um, so they just tried to like, you know, give me some fluids through an IV, um, you know, give me medication, but it was, it was a bit of chaos. Like I was like there and I was so weak and tired from like just being so dehydrated that I could just see all the doctors. There's three different doctors. There's language barriers. They didn't know what they could give me, what they couldn't give me because of all like the anti-doping regulations. And like, I was about to step into the ring and they weren't sure if I was going to step into the ring. Like it was just, it was just like a little bit crazy, but nonetheless, like that was a moment where I knew that, you know, in 2012, I didn't make it. And now it was just like, this cannot be happening. Like <laughs> 13 years of training, I'm at this moment, like this has got to be a nightmare. Um, and I mean, I just kept thinking about like something that my sports psychologist used to tell me all the time. And it was that it's not about what happens to you that counts. It's about how you react to what happens to you that matters. And like, I don't know why it was like really weird. Like <laughs> I felt like a dream, but I just like kept going through my head because it was like, I could be really pissed off right now and just like waste my energy and just like not even try getting into the ring. Cause that's what the doctors like thought I was going to do. Um, or I can just like, you know, take it all in and just go one step at a time. And then just, again, it was like moment by moment. I had no idea I was going to step into the ring till like my foot hit the canvas. Um, 
so yeah, that's what I did. And then about, um, I think it was 9.50, so an hour and 10 minutes before, like we took the IV out, I got on a bike, lucky the hospital was like right across, or not far, I should say, from our venue and like biked over again it was like out of a movie like there was this volunteer and he had to like his job was like to run beside me to make sure I didn't fall off this bike (laughs) on my way over to the venue um and yeah so I got there and everything was kind of like laid out and set up for me I tried to warm up couldn't warm up um so I just like focused on being mentally prepared like what would I normally be thinking right now you know the doctors were trying to convince me that it hadn't been um, 24 hours since I like first got the illness so that my muscles were still going to be able to react. Like, even if it felt like you feel really weak right now, like you just have to trust your muscle memory. And they were giving me like, like an instant insulin. Um, like it was like a gel or something. They were trying to like, give me this to like boost my, like, <laughs> um, I don't know. Like it was just the sugar levels and stuff. Anyway, it was, um, just a complete nightmare to be honest. And the next thing I knew, like I was standing there behind the curtain, the cameras in my face and, um, yeah, I went out there and I boxed and, you know, I, I didn't just box anybody. I boxed like a three-time world champion and a, an Olympic silver medalist and now bronze medalist from China. And, um, it was still a really close fight and yeah, like it just, I guess it just kind of shows you like how, you know, mentally strong, like all the training and, you know, all the things you go through leading up to that can really make you and definitely made me very stubborn because I didn't want to give up. And I just, I knew I'd come that far and that I would have regretted it forever if I didn't at least step in there and um, give it a shot. What I love about that story is that I think we can all relate on one level is that you've always got one of those days where you're sick and you're like, oh, I need to go to work today. I've got a busy day ahead. Like I have to go like, oh, but I'm sick. Ah, oh, screw it. I'm going to go to work. Right. And you always feel a bit like you walk into the office and you're like, yeah, look at me. I'm committed. You know, I'm, I'm sick, but here I am. <laughs> You're literally telling that story an hour and 10 minutes before an Olympic quarterfinal that essentially you probably shouldn't be competing, but stuff it. It's an Olympic quarterfinal. So uh, if anybody needs inspiration listening to this today, maybe you're listening before going to work. No, I'm a bit sick. Should I go? Listen to this story because, you know, if, if Mandy can do that in the Olympics, I think you've got a bit of a sniffle. I mean, it's it's incredible to kind of just, just think. That. I mean, after that bout, do you... Do you just go back to the village and collapse and sleep for three days? I mean, kind of like, do you then all of a sudden have to like recover from that? Not only from, I guess, disappointment of losing an Olympic quarterfinal, but then all of a sudden you, oh shit, I'm still sick. Got to, got to recover from this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely went back. Um, I kind of went into like quarantine because obviously we didn't want to make any of the other athletes sick um, who were still competing. But yeah, I mean, definitely had a lot of time to like reflect. It was, you know, it was something that was really hard for me. Like, I mean, I, couldn't tell this story even like um for about a year after it had happened because it was just I was so emotionally like attached to this um like this dream and like how much I put into it and you know everything that happened leading into it so it was it was really tough for me um to go through all of that and just you just think about like oh my god like even like I had four days off in between my two fights and it's like what if it would have happened like right after I like the first fight and like maybe I would have had time to recover and like you know you think of like every scenario and it's just like why <laughs> did this happen um but nonetheless like that definitely did um become a motivating factor for me on why I continued to go because that was supposed to be my last olympics and then it was like well 
I can't leave it like that. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, now we have four more years. <laughs> then does that that help kind of obviously i can imagine there sort of needs to be some sort of relationship where you can talk outside the boat i imagine you don't want to get out of the boat and go fuck you mate i'm going home now (laughs) like you did shit today like you want to kind of have some sort of relationship with a guy beforehand right yeah well we were like i said you know he was he's been training in the same group as me ever since i came to australia so yeah we were good mates and we have a, a really good relationship an honest relationship um you know we're not people think uh you know look at partnerships and it's all just um you know sunshine and fairies and it's all happy clappy but it's really not um we've had our fair share of blow-ups and fights and arguments but we always leave that on the water or in the shed and we walk out mates and we shake hands and we move on and i think that's why we've been able to remain honest with each other and um and uh and, and work past those probably difficult times where we you know we maybe think the one guy's doing something wrong or but it's actually just us you know as individuals being a bit silly um so yeah we have a good we have a really good relationship we're great mates off the water we're good mates on the water we're honest with each other um it's not perfect i don't think any good relationship is perfect so um yeah it's a it's healthy i think what what is a blow up in in kayaking like is it comes down to your stroke rate was shit like you didn't do this in the back end like kind of like what what is a, a standard fight when it comes to a fight between teammates oh between myself and tommy i don't know if, if one of us are late or one of us is stuffing around um if you know we're not giving if we're not doing our, our job on the water um if we're not following the training session properly stuff like that and it's just really small things that can kind of tick each other off just because you know you're in a pretty stressful environment you want to get things right i mean one guy's not on point um yeah we kind of get under each other's skin and it's, sometimes it's me sometimes it's him um but yeah you know what there's it's good to have those little arguments and, and work past them. And uh, I think they make you better, to be honest, at the end of the day. Yeah, I was going to say that. I can imagine it's kind of a bit character building, though, when you can kind of get through those. I mean, you don't want that to happen in the midway point of an Olympic final. You want it to happen a little bit before, get over it and kind of, I guess, push towards the success that you're both striving towards. Absolutely. You know, you got to work through those things, right? Um, it's it's never, it's probably never going to be perfect. Um, but if you're hard away from those, from those things or, or, or you don't want to address certain problems, and um, they're probably going to stay there and they're probably going to affect the boat and they're probably going to affect your training. So you might as well just, um, just, just get them out, have an honest conversation, have a blow up and, uh, and work past it. Which must be a pretty amazing feeling then if you can kind of land the spinning head kick in the dying seconds to it. Like, I mean, that's like hitting a home run, kicking a goal after the siren, like kind of these little moments where the adrenaline just must be pumping through you so much. It, it is. And I am very blessed, I guess, in terms of the way that you imagine winning the world championships probably as a, as a child, like with the stands full going crazy you're versing korea which is like the home the homeland of taekwondo so everyone that comes out of korea is awesome and you win in the final seconds so i think i had maybe seven seconds on the scoreboard left when i landed like a turning head kick to the face and when i reflect back on that it was just such a beautiful moment because i was so completely in the fight i don't even remember it wasn't even a thought I didn't even think about doing that kick it just came out 
and um, my grandmaster head instructor from um, my club would say that, you know, when you reach that master level, it's not about seeing something and then doing it, it's doing something and then you see it. And that's exactly how it was. So I had done the kick and then I saw that I had done the kick. So it was, yeah, it, it was a pretty, um, pretty epic moment. Like I, I know there was at least one. I, I can't remember if it was multiple times when you're crossing, sort of you, you've come on air, and then you're still sort of connected to some of the other commentators, and you get an opportunity to talk to Bruce McAvaney. I mean, I don't know if you've sort of uh, met him before or through any of the other Channel Seven things, but I mean that during an Olympics, this is him. And it's like if he's talking to you in the middle of a cricket match, like you know, that's kind of when you want to speak to someone in their zone. Yeah, he. Um, I, I, I did get interviewed the first year Channel Seven had. Um, the cricket, they used him. I think they interviewed certain people. He interviewed certain former cricketers during the lunch break. So I was one of those. Um, and like, he is just God yeah. from, from broadcasts um, and what he remembers. So when we had the upfronts where obviously from a sponsor, the sponsors or the corporate commercials come together and they introduce who the commentary team is. So this is before lockdown. So he kind of got up there and he's going through, you know, he did Ledecky and Titmus, you know, and said it is going to be, and this is like a year and a bit out of it. This is going to be where all eyes will turn to, you know, and back in you know, four years ago, this happened and he's just rattling it off. And I'm like, you're a freak. Like yeah. there is no way I am ever going to remember anything like that. Um, and just his delivery, his tone, so personable that you feel like you're going on a journey with him. Um so yeah, so when we went a couple of times when we um we kind of came on air and and the the, the athletics was going and we got to kind of chat to them, I was like, oh, I think I need to ask him a question. But whew, what question do I? I don't want to sound like an absolute idiot, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, he, he's a legend, uh, Joanna Griggs. She she's amazing. Like she came out to my house. So when I thought I was originally going to work with her, she came to my house and helped me with. Um, teleprompt and helped me with with the app and took me through a bit of training and you know rang me up before the Olympics saying you know we're so disappointed you're not down here in Melbourne but good luck can't wait to see stuff so I mean it was a real um, it was a real family effort and you know it was, we were so happy to see everyone do so well not only the athletes but the amount of work the broadcast the planning like it is a mammoth task and it's something you know as a former athlete, you have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. Um, but they did a, a, I thought they did an incredible job in the coverage of the Olympics. Tell us about the reaction that other athletes had to the Canadian tuxedo. Cause our Australian commentators <laughs> loved it. And I was living in Canada when they released all the merchandise at the Bay and I nearly bought one. I think they look epic, the, the jackets, but, uh, were you getting athletes coming up to you going like, dude, like these are epic. Like, you know, give me one. I'll swap you this. I want one. <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't meant to go to the closing ceremony as you, as you mentioned, but we had to get 
from Sapporo back to Canada and we couldn't do it all in, in one go because there was an airport transfer in Tokyo. And, and that happened to coincide with the night that was uh, a closing ceremony. So that was the day after my race. So, so we transferred the marathon women to um, the Olympic village and to closing ceremony. And we, we ran, we, you know, Evan was there because he'd had his medal ceremony in the stadium the day previous. Um, I was so beat up because I had just run a marathon the day before. I couldn't walk, was just in so much pain. So that was actually kind of a painful experience going to closing ceremony because they drop you off like three miles before the the stadium because all the buses bring these athletes and you have to walk in so far. And we were wearing the Canadian tuxedos and it's like 40 degrees and 100% humidity and we're wearing thick denim jeans, thick denim jacket, mask, hat, a black t-shirt, like... (laughs) we were just dying and you know, you don't, you're not, you can't bring anything with you like a backpack with, so you're just like, want to just, I don't know, like jump in a swimming pool and cool off. But, um, it was, it was, I was glad to go to the ceremony because you know, yeah, I get FOMO. You don't want to miss anything, but, um, walking that far in the, <laughs> those clothes the day after a marathon. Was I'm really just thinking now that you say that, like with the buses, you think they would think, okay, the marathon athletes can go up the front so they don't have to work <laughs> the three months. And then secondly, yeah. now that you talk about this, uh, you know, it looks great, but yeah, logistically maybe not the smartest decision for uh, <laughs> the closing attire at a hot Olympics. Like maybe came for the winters in Beijing, right? <laughs> yeah, so I was kind of envious of the Australian closing ceremony outfit because they were just like dresses for the women, lightweight dresses, and shorts and a t-shirt for men. That's what we needed to That's wear. That, okay, this this is this is where the, the 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 different cultures come into play. We're all on board the summers. We're like, yeah, we know it's going to be hot, cool. But come the winters, we're the ones in the corner freezing our asses off. Whereas you guys in the winters are like, oh, we've got you know, we've got the jackets, the puffy ones, and that. And That's when we break up on... the t-shirts. Right? Yeah, exactly. You're the ones wearing. The those in the winters while we're, you know, like spotting Australian at the Winter Olympics. It's not that hard. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure there are still people out there who remember your name, remember the headline, and they still probably think, oh, well, she was drug cheap, but they don't know the full story. So, I mean, that all those things you've got to overcome, I mean, does that yeah. spur you on even more to kind of just prove those doubters that you already had, clearly with this entire journey you got to that point, to just show everybody just, wow, like this is wrong, what's happened? Yeah, honestly, um, after that, like after getting cleared, I was – so I was very transparent with um, – with the process and everything, um, with my lawyer, with my, I, I had an agent that followed me through this because she believed in me. And people actually, people who knew me were like, there is no way the homes, we, anyone, if anyone else, we were told anyone else as doped, we might be inclined to believe it, but not you. Like, just why would you? And, and I was like, thank you for believing in me. But it was like, kind of, blind faith in me and I was kind of like I was so happy but at the same time I wanted to prove them right for believing in me right um but we were very very transparent through the whole thing like at the beginning when I came back I was like I have no idea we will do everything we we can to find how it happened and then after that we did everything and there was a, a, a documentary made on this back like in Quebec which is in French sadly it's not like it's not easy to broadcast everywhere um but everything we did 
to like find how it happened is in the documentary. So after that, like I was like, okay, now that the documentary is out, if people want to get a better idea on, on me, they can watch the documentary. And if even then, if even then they still believe I did it and I'm a cheater, I cannot do anything to dare to change their mind. And I don't care. Like at that time, I, I was really just like, I'm clear, I can paddle again, I can go back to my life. And I don't really care about people who, you know, still believe I did it. But yeah, at first, some people just straight up wrote to me on Messenger and be like, you're worse than Lance Armstrong. Wait, was it Lance, Lance who, who yeah. like yeah. this? Yeah. yeah, you're worse than Armstrong. You're worse than Ben Johnson. You're worse than like all those insane like cases of cheating. Like I was almost com compared to like Sochi by myself, you know? Wow. <laughs> like, it was so crazy. And That's I was like, I think you're not comparing the right thing there, okay? There's, I'm yeah. saying with everything that you've had to face, there's a movie in this. You talk about a documentary being made. I, I'm just seeing that there needs to be yeah, sort of a movie made a, about your journey. Come on. Yeah, some people have uh, asked me if they could write something about it. Hey, <laughs> yeah, get on board that, you know, like jump on that. Too yeah, much. but it's, it's quite know? fresh. I kind of want to like let myself live a little bit, you know, go back to school first uh, before having to relive it all. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It, which, it was crazy. Which then we always like to find out sort of about those Olympic experiences outside of the competition, you know, being in the village, kind of soaking all that atmosphere up. And I can imagine that adds a bit of an extra layer of kind of, uh, you know, achievement when you're, you're in Tokyo, when you, when you arrive and you're getting ready to compete, you see the rings, you see all that sort of stuff with everything that you've gone through to get to that point. Honestly, the the moment it hit me the most was not even well. Okay, it hit me really hard when the day I was officially allowed to go. Uh, so when I was selected, uh, I got my my jacket, <laughs> and when I beautiful put it on, beautiful jackets. I I am so jealous of the Canadian. Like attire. it depends which one, but I yeah. just got like this standard red jacket, Canada. And I just put it on, and I got this like just a full body shiver just like you know like the how do you say that goosebumps <laughs> like, uh, goosebumps yes full on goosebumps and just like oh my god it was so exciting but then when i got to the games i was like yeah i'm at the games but i never got that realization that i'm at the games until literally the starting line of my, my semi-final in C1. Wow. Like the second day of racing, like I raced on the, I, I raced on the Wednesday. Uh, wait, no, was it Wednesday? I think it was Wednesday. And then on Thursday, I'm on the starting line about a hundred meter before my line. And I look around me and I'm like, I'm at the Olympic games. I'm, I'm in the games. Wow. And I just, I just started not freaking out, but I was so happy. I was just overwhelmed by just being happy and content with where I was. That on the starting line, my parents said that they saw me smile. They were like, oh my God, she's being way too overconfident. But I was not overconfident. I was not con concentrating at all. And one of my worst race, I just could not focus. I came third in the semi. And then I had to re-race like a few hours later. And then I, I just got on the line on the final and I was 
I was still happy. I was still feeling that bliss, but I was way more con like concentrated. So when I started, I just gave everything I had. And it but, yeah. sort of worked out for you. Uh, you yeah, you, you, but it's a weird moment, you know, to, yeah. to realize on the line that it's happening. <laughs> Obviously, Atlanta, very famous. There's probably not a single question I can ask you right now that you haven't answered a hundred times. Is there anything about Atlanta that maybe hasn't been told or something that maybe you haven't really sort of told a lot about? Because, I mean, it's just so etched in Olympic history for Australians that I, I can't imagine there's there's not a lot that you haven't discussed about it before. No, you're right. It is, it is obviously one of those things that, that people do remember and you do, you know, I do get asked about it quite a lot. Um Look, I think uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think I, for a long time, I probably haven't talked or mentioned much that um, uh, it was the first time that I met Greg Norman. Wow. And uh, he, uh, I mean, the, the funny side story was is that he was there. He, he, he bought a ticket in the public grandstand. He wasn't, you know, um, playing on the Greg Norman name. He just he bought a ticket for him and his son in the morning to watch the heats. And um, they were in the grandstands and, of course, you know, the public recognised him and he had this long line of people asking him for autographs. And um, one of the security guards who was actually near where the Aussie swim team was sitting um, went and asked um, our head coach, you know, hey, Greg Norman's over there and he's getting harassed. Um, how would you feel if I brought him over here so he could sort of, you know, be in a secure spot and of course our our head coach is like is a was a massive golfer and yeah 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 that'd be awesome and i'm sure when the um uh the security guard asked norman if he wanted to come over he probably thought oh wow this is awesome not realizing that he'd spend the next two hours answering golf questions from <laughs> our head coach but um he, he he sat in the stands and he watched the racing and then afterwards they brought him down on pool deck something you'd never get away with now, like, you know, post 9-11, um, Centennial Plaza bomb, you know, there's no way in the world that um, some random, no matter how famous you are, can just wander onto pool deck at the Olympics. But here he was. And I, I'd, I'd, had, a, I'd had a shocking heat um, and was, you know, freaking out a little bit about what I was going to do in the final the next night. Um, and I sort of get to the pool deck, the warm down area, and there's Greg Norman. I was like, holy crap. Greg Norman, because um, I'd never met him before, but, you know, like every Aussie's, you know, who you certainly know who he was. Um, and and we got introduced and and didn't have long to talk because I needed to do my warm down, but it was one of those, it was kind of one of those weird conversations that a couple of strangers who are, you know, connected by the similarity of what they do, um, you know, looking for a conversation, but otherwise having nothing in like we didn't know each other, were complete strangers. You know, we talked about the weather and I asked him how he was enjoying the Atlanta and, you know, all the sort of niceties. And then it just got to this moment where he, you know, did the statesman thing and he said to me, look, you, you look like you've had a bit of a rough morning this morning, but, you know, you're a great champion. You know, you know how to win. You'll be fine. Don't forget that. And at the time, I, I kind of, like in the moment, I, I obviously thanked him and was, was you know, really, um, I mean, it was amazing to meet him and it was good of him to take the time. But I remember sort of jumping in the water doing my warm down and thinking, yeah, that, that's, that's not enough. I need, I need something else to make the difference or to turn the dial here, you know. 
but it was it was incredible thinking back on it now, sort of the next 48 hours or 36 odd hours between the heat and the final. You know, I, I had these amazing roller coaster up and downs, but really what it came down to, um, to, to be able to swim well in the final was just, it was this moment of recognition that, you know, you've been swimming this race your whole life, you know how to do it. Um, and the things that enabled you to be successful when you were young still matter. And all of this stuff that you're worried about as an adult that um, is getting in the way of allowing you to swim well doesn't matter. Uh, and just relying on that experience and history and recognising it and, and not taking it for granted, actually using it um, with purpose. Um, you know, it, it, it became a revelation and it really, you know, at the time connected, like well, certainly now when I think back on it, you know, it was, it was very sage advice from him. And um, if I'd have been just a little bit smarter, I would have worked it out just a little bit quicker than I ultimately did. Look, I'm, I'm calling this now. Now, I've, I've already said on this show two potential final torchbearers, the cauldron light as a Kathy moment. Now, your name is definitely one as a great Queensland athlete or <laughs> Stephen Bradbury. Now, I'm just saying, like, you, you two, maybe you two can do it together or maybe you can go to light the cauldron, then you fall, fall over, over. Yep. and then he picks up the, the – and then boom, done. Like, come on. Like, I mean, you can take this and pass it on to the officials. I'm just saying, a good idea. Come on. That is that I I will uh, I, I will be taking all credit for that idea and, and throwing it forward and and knowing Steve I think he'd uh, he'd enjoy the uh, the irony of it and have some fun with it as well so absolutely. Obviously though, you get to the Olympics, doesn't quite go to plan. Uh, what tell us what happened because this is a unique story about how sort of you didn't really even get to compete at the Olympics. No, so my, my first Olympics was not my favourite at all. Um, I wouldn't say not my favourite, just wasn't wasn't meant to be, but it made me the person who I am today. Um, it made me a, a stronger athlete and it just had to plan out how it was. So um, I qualified for the, the Sydney Olympics um, probably – at the start of the year of, of 2000. And like I said, we went overseas for a long time. It probably was, no, it was probably winter. Cause I remember Canberra being pretty cold. So it might've been about April we qualified and then we trained till, you know, September overseas. And, and I was a light flyweight then. So I was 48 kilos back then. And, um, yeah, I was 17 when I first qualified for my first Olympics and, uh, just the training was different. Uh, I ended up having a growth spurt and putting on a little bit more muscle than what I usually would when I was training at home with my um, proper coach or my coach. Um, and I knew I sort of had a, I had some troubles when we were in the US and that was our second last um, overseas camp before we had to come back home to Sydney and straight into the village. Um, we went to the US and then to New Mia to finish off some last bit of competition sparring, but I was struggling a bit in, in America. Uh, every day we had to make a, or had to weigh in every day, just that training to keep us under wraps. But I remember we had to be about half a kilo over our uh, fighting weight before we went to the next place. And I was struggling a bit then, um, you know, otherwise we, I, couldn't go to breakfast or something or other. So I had to make it anyway. 
and um, I knew I was having some trouble then. And um, that went on from there. Then I went over to the last bit of training camp, which was in New Mayor and uh, still struggling a little bit. And then when I finally got into the village, it just wasn't moving at all. My weight just wasn't budging. And, um, you know, I was sneaking out of the village and heading back home to do some late night runs and stuff like that. And uh, just doing my best to get rid of it, really. Um, and then unfortunately I failed to make weight and I weighed in at uh, 48.3 kilos and uh, got disqualified before I was allowed to fight, really, before the, the games. It was on the same night as the opening ceremony. So 0.3 of a kilo. Yeah, 0.3. That's, probably, that's the, probably the weight of them little yellow kangaroos we were talking about before. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. So, I mean, and that happened on the night. So, was that before or after the opening ceremony? Uh, that was before the opening ceremony. So, it was the, the morning of. So, what they do is we uh, wait in the morning of the um, the opening ceremony, and then that would um, put you into the draw, and then you'd find out who you'd fight from that, and then you know the next day you competition. They knew what weights were fighting on the on the next day of the competition. So if I was had to fight the next day and I made weight, then I probably would not have gone to the opening ceremony. Um, so, um, you know, that's, that's yeah, how it was. So I, was, I, was, I remember seeing the doctor in there actually. And um, he said, how are you feeling? And I remember just going, I just feel sick. I just feel tired. I don't have energy. Um, I wasn't eating that probably that last week as well. Like not, not much anyway. And I knew it was going to be very tough to make it. And I remember sharing the uh, sauna with James Swan, who was our featherweight, and he knew that I was struggling. And he ended up going in and telling the coaches that, no, nah, he's, he's had enough, he's not looking good. And um, unfortunately, that's what happened at Sydney. So uh, not the the best Olympics as a, as a kid, as a 17-year-old or 18-year-old when, when the game started. But um, and being a local boy too, only twenty minutes down the road was um, not the best uh, Olympics now. Walking away, part of the leadership team, and um, just being on that team in general, twenty-one medals, you know, nine of them gold. Uh, I mean, mm. pretty amazing. If you put that into context, Australia only won nine gold in total at the uh, Atlanta Olympics back in 1996. This is nine gold in mm. one sport. Uh, I mean, yeah. just is this, as long as you're being part of the team, but is this kind of the, the highest of highs that people have felt during this team and just the confidence levels that must be within the, the Dolphins at the moment after the success in Tokyo must be just extraordinary leading into, you know, 2022 and beyond? Yeah. Um, yeah, honestly, it was fantastic. It's something that I am extremely proud of. Um, I'm extremely proud to be part of this team. And I think, you know, to even make the Australian Olympic swimming team is probably one of the hardest teams to make um, in Australia. You know, the qualifying process that we have to go through. And we actually had a really, really successful 2019 World Championships. Um, we had a bit of a smaller team there, but the way that we came together and kind of rallied around each other, it really, you know, it instilled some confidence in the whole team that we can go away to Tokyo and, we can have a really, really solid experience. And for me personally, the highlight, you know, it was fantastic to walk away with two medals with, you know, some, some of my great friends in those relays. But even to be up in the stands and to watch some of those extreme, extremely uh, special performances, you know, 
even, you know, Kate Campbell winning a bronze medal in the 100 free, Emily Seabon bronze medal in the 200 metre backstroke. And that's their fourth Olympic Games. And I think that the team culture that we built, you know, it really helps get the best out of everybody on the day and get those performances. And, you know, to watch every single session, you know, something special happened from an Australian athlete was, yeah, it was really, really special. Was, was there anybody as animated as, as Dean that we just didn't see on the cameras? Like, I mean, kind of, a, <laughs> are there any of you up in the stands that are also kind of going a bit cray-cray while some volunteers are staring at going, who the hell are these Australians? But they're, <laughs> boy, they're excited. <laughs> oh, probably not taking it to that extent. But, you know, I remember on the last, on the last, um, it must have been the last morning, so the last session of the finals, and we had a massive uh, Australian con- contingent up in the stands and pretty much every race we were going absolutely nuts. And I can remember that, uh, the women's medley relay it was one of the last events of the games and you know Kate Campbell that little anchor leg and she pushed the relay so tight and we were all just like on the edge of our seats and when she touched the wall we were all going crazy and you know I'm jumping up and down and yeah as you know Kyle Kyle's 100 free as well that was something that mm. I went I went absolutely nuts for um, myself and Zach and Sergi and Kyle we were kind of pretty good mates while we were away um, and Zach and I were up in the stands sitting next to each other watching and we were literally hugging each other and bouncing up and down on the spot. It was just, yeah, I don't know if the camera camera's caught us at all, but it was probably, probably yeah, relatively similar to Dean. But um, no, it was just a fantastic environment to be a part of. Actually, quite a lot of disappointment that led up to that kind of Commonwealth Games team. You know, I, I tried to make the 2012 Olympic team and I really, I narrowly missed out on that. And I was absolutely devastated and I kind of questioned whether I wanted to keep shooting. Um, but I really miss training because I actually do enjoy training. Um, and I was kind of scared to go back into a... Um, a selection process for games because they're a little bit, they're hugely pressurised. Um, and obviously I decided I'd give it another go. Um, and I had a, a really great um, kind of selection period, kind of like a bit of a dream run really. Um, and then once I made that team, I was kind of, like a dog that's chased a rabbit and actually got the rabbit and kind of surprised that they actually got the rabbit and doesn't know what to do with it after. (laughs) And I was absolutely terrified in the preparation for the 2014 Commonwealth Games because, oh, my goodness, people are going to actually watch me shoot. And, you know, I just felt like Australia was going to be watching and which that's not really the case, but it's what it felt like. Um, so I was absolutely terrified in the lead up to those games. Um, but I, I was, I was told by a psychic that I would win the, the medal at wow. Glasgow, <laughs> but Jeez, I had good to, psychic. <laughs> she turned out to be right, but she, she told me I had to every morning and every night get up. And before I did anything else, I would get up and say, I am the 2014 Commonwealth Games gold medalist. So I did that every day for about three months in the lead up to these games. And I remember getting up the the morning of competition, 
And the day before I'd shot terribly. Like I shot, I think I shot about a 60, like low 60s. And I think it was like 62 or something like that in training, which was bad, bad. Like if I shot like that on competition day, I wasn't even going to make the final. So I remember sitting on my bed that morning saying to myself, I'm the 2014 Commonwealth Games gold medalist, but kind of not really believing it um, in a way. Like, And I got out there, the very first shot, I missed the target. I thought, oh, my goodness. Like I, some days are good days and some days are really bad days. And it, it's almost like the harder you try, the worse it gets. So I thought, oh God, I'm, like I'm just gonna, I'm gonna have a bad day on what seemed to be like the most important day of my shooting career. And I just thought, oh well, like it is what it is. I'm just gonna enjoy it. So after that first miss, I actually didn't miss that many more targets. Not because I wasn't trying, I was just there, was enjoying the experience and kind of everything else kind of fell into place. Um, and I obviously made the final. And then I just thought at the final, I've made the final. That's that's what Shooting Australia wanted me to do. Um, that That's the goal that they'd put in place for me. Um, and kind of, I told them that I wanted to win a medal at the, the Games and they, they said, we don't think you can, we don't think you're ready. Um, wow. Great, yeah. great inspirational speech there. <laughs> Shooting Australia. Yeah, nah, we don't think you. I don't you. think you're ready. Just you try um, your best, Laura. You you can you can do it. <laughs> Go get him, <'em>, champ. <laughs> but like kind of looking back now, probably thinking that you're gonna win a medal at your first games is a little bit ambitious. Um so after I won, well, after I got into the final, like it didn't matter what else happened, because I'd already, you know, made Shooting Australia happy because I'd made the final. So everything else was a bonus. And I just kind of enjoyed it and kind of rode the wave. This is just adding to those layers of the difficulties of, of the sport because it's it's I cannot remember anything for the life of me, let alone I'd be halfway through going, shit, what do I do? Fuck how do I know how to swim? Like Jesus, <laughs> like what's got what's going on? Because it's it's very counting based, isn't it? So in terms of the synchronized aspect of the sport because you're not able to, I guess, look what every girl around you is doing. It's all about oh. counting, isn't it, and kind of working out and hoping that everyone's doing the same thing, right? Oh, man, yeah, Ben, like remembering the counts, the specific counts, <laughs> is the bane of my existence. <laughs> like, oh, it's a nightmare. And my coaches have been so patient with me over the years. <laughs> like, it is, you have to be so fast. And all these girls are so smart. So <laughs> I think I make up for it with trying to be really high out of the water and powerful, like once and I legs. have these moves down. <laughs> Yeah, but I, you feel like such a dummy sometimes, like, <laughs> and it's so specific. Like, I think that's what people don't realize to look the same. Um, so much practice and repetition goes into it. And it's not just your arm goes on three, it's your arm goes on three, but it's at a 45 degree angle, not a 41 degree angle. And everyone's hands has to be in this position. Um, 
and your fingers need to be this far apart, not this far apart. <laughs> I mean, Jeez. I'm aware this is a podcast. So I wish I could show the listeners, but it's um such so specific how you hold your hands and your shoulders and where you're looking. Everyone needs to have the same facial expression and look at the judges. So I think that's when um, when people start to understand that part of the sport, that's when it gets a lot more entertaining to watch too. And all artistic sports, I would say, are similar um, like that. And that's when it gets really entertaining. Like, ooh, that girl isn't um, doing that move the same as everyone else or she's higher, or she's lower or yeah, that's when the artistic sports get very um, entertaining for me anyway. Is there something that you would like to do as a routine? Like if you're a big fan of, I don't know, Star Wars, Marvel, DC, anything along those lines that you would like to in- incorporate something along those lines into a routine? Oh, uh, that's such a good question. I've gotten to do like uh, so many routines now, uh, like over my career. So I've got to do a lot of cool things, but I think the only one left, I would love to do a Star Wars theme routine because yes. I love the cantina band music. Like, yes. I'm not as- <laughs> Oh, yes, please do it. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. That would be perfect. Yes. <laughs> right? Wouldn't that be so cool? And I could just already see the legs like kicking everywhere yes. for that. So wow. I, I'd want to do it on a club level too, because then it could be something really fun. Like, yeah. And like a club level combo, have lots of lifts. And I, I would love to see a girl like come out of the water slowly as Darth Vader. <laughs> yes. Hey, there you go. And then like you could add the talking element to it. You could have the no, like as they come up, like, <laughs> where's Padme? What happened to Padme? The girl killed her in her rage. And like, again, <laughs> it would go viral. That would go absolutely viral. <laughs> yeah. I think you've got to come uh, choreograph this with us. Hey, or we could uh, do a mixed duet. <laughs> yeah. Hey, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm down. You know, you, you can be Padme. I can be Vader. And then we can get somebody else to come in and, and be Palpatine, you know, get Obi-Wan involved. Baby Yoda's probably <laughs> going to be in there to, to keep up with the trends. So, you know, hey, Paris 2024, uh, you know, I'm always, trying to, I'm always trying to find ways to get into the Olympics at some point, Kurt. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a bit older than you, but it can happen at some point, surely. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Absolutely I can feel down. my coach rolling her eyes at me from here. But <laughs> hey, it's hey, all I'm about down. getting eyes to the sport, all right? And I'm telling you, that, that, would, uh, that would happen down the line with that. process then the moment you qualify for London what's that feeling like that all that hard work you just mentioned there has has paid off and you're officially officially an Olympian oh that was incredibly emotional um I had a number of my friends actually flew over to China to come to that event and support me and and have that there but I think the big turning point for me was uh, in the fencing so in in Chengdu at the qualifier um I was really nervous going in, um, but uh, beforehand in the weeks leading up, and then on the day, I felt like I was I was in a in a good headspace. But I just kept on going on onto the strip, and I just kept losing and losing and losing and losing. And halfway through the fence, I was um, in third last position. I think I'd I'd lost thirteen and I'd won three, 
and uh, all my other all the other Australian athletes were, were doing quite well. And if you have a bad fence, it's pretty much game over. And um, I can just recall at the big, it was, I got to a point where it was, uh, yeah, it just wasn't going to happen. And, and then my fencing coach, Bill, who was there with me, he just grabbed me and he just said, look, you, you know, you've lost, you, you've lost now just go out there and just fight for it. And, uh, you know, turn, just turn it around. Like you can still, there's nothing to lose now because you're at a point where, you, you know, you you basically forget about your dream. Um, you've you know you just got absolutely nothing to lose because you've you've already lost it. Uh, and I can just remember he sort of slapped me in the face, and that sort of slap sort of jolted me, and I just went to a headspace that um, I'd never been before. I, it was it was crazy. It was like a, 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 a absolutely emotional <laughs> a supercharge, and uh, I went on the strip, and I had all my hard bouts in the second half as well, and. Um, I won every single one of them. I won 13 in a row at the end and ended up with a really good fencing score at wow. the back end of it and which which got me which got me through to the next event and uh, that was <laughs> I, I can remember coming off that strip and seeing tears in in his eyes and you know seeing that we were able to turn that around and then we still got four events to go <laughs> three events to go <laughs> um, and then from there we went over to the swim for the warm up of the swim and I just worked so hard in the back half of the fence that I dived in the pool and my all my legs started to cramp. So my quads were just cramping because I'd been loading them up and in the fencing. And uh, so I, I, that again, I was I was incredibly concerned that um, I wouldn't even be able to swim like that had never ever happened to me before. Um, so instead of doing a swim warm up, I just went in, put my suit on, and um, my coach was just digging his his. Uh, his elbow into my quad to stop it spasming. Um, and then when the race came, I just got on the blocks and thought, well, if I cramp, I cramp, I can't do anything about it. Um, but I got on the blocks and managed to achieve a two second PB and um, get through it. Uh, and then rode, rode well and, and then was able to go through the run and had a very strong run and qualified for the Olympics. So it was an incredibly emotional day. Uh, and and to be able to share that with family and friends was yeah some a day that I'll I'll never forget. The secret is the slap, Ed. You know that TV show, the slap. <laughs> that's that's what they should be writing it about. It should be about you, just a coach slapping you and get you to the damn Olympics. <laughs> yeah, well we we do we do laugh about that. We still do laugh about that today when we catch up. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I just expect that's this. Right. If people are watching you, ever they just constantly see your coaches slapping you. It's like you get there, it's about yeah. to swim. Slap me, slap me, yeah, coach. No, come on. No, no, it's not a not a regular thing, but it it did, it did the trick. It did the trick. <laughs> Not about Olympics to make your debut at a home Olympics as well. I mean, sort of outside of the competition thing, do you remember sort of much around the the hype? And, I mean, if you did the opening ceremonies, things like that. I mean, I can imagine that's an incredible experience to have your first Olympics at home. Definitely. It was, uh, it was quite an electric experience, you know, going out in the opening ceremony. Um, even, like, you know, days off. Not days off, but even times you'd walk out into Darling Harbour, you know, um, you'd get a lot of... Uh, I guess attention from the public, you know, um, yeah, at 19 years of age at the time, you know, it was, especially in the sport of wrestling, you got a lot of recognition, you know, um, 
you know, outside of outside of the Olympics, mate, no one knows what wrestling is. No one knows. Not to say you do it for um, a recognition, but uh, you're definitely not walking the streets like an AFL football player. Mm, yeah, yeah, and also I can imagine then too, just for the sport in general, to have crowds like that at in Sydney. I mean, because I, I can't imagine that Australia would have ever had, or maybe since, unless maybe Commonwealth Games, yeah. and a, a crowd like that to come and watch wrestling. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it was it was good exposure for the sport. Um, in saying that, I mean, I was I was uh, Ruin HG took the piss out of me, you know, in one of my matches. Oh, so you were one of the ones they commented on, were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. okay. Right. I remember it vividly. Like, I remember their commentary, of course, but I didn't realise that, that you were in one of the, the commentary ones. That must have been an interesting experience. Yeah, yeah it was quite interesting, you know. Um, I guess any publicity is good publicity. <laughs> 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 which, which uh, I mean, look, I, I try to... The, <laughs> I'm just remembering things like, what was like the dog and all that kind of stuff that they yeah, did. Pretty it much, was, yeah, pretty yeah. yeah, the exposure that it kind of gave to it there. But, I mean, like as you say, any publicity is good publicity. I mean, people maybe have a bit of a laugh and go, okay, this sport's a bit strange, but it does at least show the sport. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, Roy actually was obviously very popular during those Olympics, yeah. so all of a sudden people yeah. might have wanted to tune in a little bit more and watch it a oh, bit more. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, so everyone's like even when people used to ask me, oh, what do you do? I said, I do wrestling, and everyone straight away would say, Oh, Greco-Roman, um, only because that's what got the bad rap in the Olympics. You know, mm-hmm. when they go to the, go the dog and all that kind of positions and stuff. So I guess, yeah, I think that uh, made an impression on the public. We we did some fun commentary during Tokyo and we did wrestling one day. And uh, look, we, we, we did so much that I can't remember exactly what we did, but I can't say we went we went the Roy and HG route and kind of uh, went that side of things. But it was fun. Like, I think we, that's what we did. We, we, we brought in introduction music. We kind of went full WWE style. We brought in, like, as they're walking to the mat, like, bring in some, you know, play play the Hulk theme, Hulk Hogan and all that kind of stuff. Like, pump it up a little bit. Bring, bring the, the intro music. <laughs> initially were the 63 kilo right so you went up and so now you're going back down is that is that common amongst judokos to kind of do that i've been everywhere so originally i was 57s when i started my senior career then i went to 63s just before the london olympics because i snapped my acl and the performance director at the time made me move up which i didn't want to do and then i mean i was very very skinny at 57 so that was probably a sensible move and then I got moved up during another MCL reconstruction, uh, during another injury. Again, I didn't want to. The coach at the time thought it was the right thing. I'm still not sure about that. But So that's why I moved up to 70s. Um, but then I like eating, so I didn't mind it too much. <laughs> Whatever I want. And now I've got a different coach again. Um, and obviously we're starting in a new cycle. Um, so he said, well, I think you'd be better at 63s because, I mean, I am very short for 70s, so 63s is probably much better suited for me. Um, and it means I'll be able to be at the top of my weight because a lot of, when I was fighting in 70s, a lot of the girls come uh, come stepping on the mat for the competition. They'll probably be 75, 74 kilos and I'm still 70 kilos. So it's obviously giving a bit away. Um, whereas at 63s, I'll be one of the, the heavier ones. Um, so yeah, that was my last coach's decision. And I thought last cycle, let's go hard or go home. 
Yeah, I'm just I'm just disappointed that um, ski ballet didn't kind of last the distance outside of the the demonstration sport. Like I I'm glad to see it still exists, uh, Deidre. But what do we have to do to get it back and sort of in the Olympic schedule? Because I love those videos that float around every now and then when you see what it was like back at the Olympics. It's fun. You know what is so interesting is like I watch slope style and I see them doing I see them doing like inherently ballet moves as they as they start to become more creative and more artistic in that event. So, I mean, does does ski ballet have to come back? I don't I don't know. I'm I'm not sure that we need more judge sports that are like very subjective. Um, but it was you know what it was great for is it was a feeder system for for young girls into the sport, and I think that. Um, it just, it spoke to like how girls interact with activity and was a feeder to all the other sports. So I think losing it probably, um, in retrospect was, was negative to freestyle skiing and, and I wish, you know, more could have been done to, to keep it. Was it fun when you did it though? Like, I mean, it looks like it's a fun sport. It was, it was so interesting and fun and choosing your music and like learning these, like. I used to spend hours doing pole flips in the summer on our front lawn, like just learning how to go upside down and practicing. So yeah, you bet it was fun. Like it was, it was great. What was the best song you ever performed to? Can you remember? The Flintstones? Like, oh, <laughs> wow. Now uh, tell me there's video footage of this. Come on now. There's got oh, to I'm exist. Sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Faye and Steve Dion have it somewhere. I don't know if uh, I'll be digitizing <laughs> it anytime soon. <laughs> Might be something we have to uh, yeah yeah keep keep on and uh, push our luck with that one. One thing I wanted to touch on, I was going to ask this question, but I didn't actually realise there was already an answer to this question. Obviously, the uh, men's side here in Australia, the Kookaburras, the, the women's side the hockey ruse we've talked a lot about on this show with Colin about the fact that in Australia, we love to give our teams nicknames. It's a very Australian thing. I think there's only one team in Australia that doesn't have a nickname and that's our men's cricket team. We're just called the men's cricket team. They won't (laughs) give them a a nickname for whatever reason. I was going to ask if uh, Canada have one, but I'm reading here and is this correct? The red caribou, is that the official uh, nickname, the mascot that's the- it. I'm, I'm even wearing the hat right now. You this are. Look at that. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. Uh, is this a uniquely field hockey thing? Because I don't see that much in Canada that you give your national teams nicknames. Yeah, no, that is unique to field hockey. We, um, I think it was before Rio, actually, the guys came up with it uh, for exactly that reason. It was like all these other countries have names. Um, and even like you look at New Zealand's the black sticks, I think Spain is the red sticks. You got the red lions uh, coming out of Belgium. So yeah, I don't know who actually came up with the name, but eventually it was like this whole thing. Like, okay, we're going to call ourselves the red caribou. We had a connection within the community, come up with the logo. We made hats, we made shirts. We, yeah, we sold it as kind of a fundraising thing uh, and created this like identity around it that really helped our supporters which is really friends and family but it helped them get around it a lot more um which yeah which it is works good. like it's, yeah, it's, it does. it's a thing i know in australia like we literally know our teams by their names like that like it's 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 rare to ever hear during an olympics 
the the women's field hockey team are through to the, <laughs> like it, it's always the hockey roos are through to the the court. You know straight away who you're talking with. The Kookaburras are playing for gold tonight. Like it's never the men's field hockey team are playing for gold tonight. So that needs to take off more in Canada. Like this is where you are the the, the bench setters for for this in cross Canada. The the red caribou should be setting a trend. I, I want to see in Beijing the the ice hockey boys like you know not just Team Canada <laughs> like they should be like I don't know the ice bears or something like that. I have no idea like come up with a new game for every team in Canada. Yeah, we should. We should. It's I'll ground, send them it's, a note. <laughs> Do it. Please do. Groundbreaking. And how, so when you do release the hats and the merchandise, so like, d- does that take off? Like, do you, do you find yourself all of a sudden, uh, you know, having a lot of people who are interested in getting red caribou merch? Yeah, it did for us. Um, so we partnered with, again, like another connection of someone um, who owned a, a hat company called Nine O'Clock Gun. Um, and so we partnered with him, he, or they produced these hats for us. And so it was like really nice quality stuff. So then when we go to sell it and they can, people can see it, it's like, okay, this is actually good stuff as well as I'm supporting the team. Um, so it wasn't just, we got the cheapest we could do and just ship them out there. Um, and as well, like you get that benefit of, you know, partnering with local businesses, um, supporting local, that type of stuff that I think goes a long way as well. Speaking of music, at least, your favourite pump-up song is? Pump-up song. Um, I'll typically throw on anything by either J. Cole or Drake. Nice. Any of their kind of more upbeat songs will get me going. Is it a case of do you as a team, sort of when you're in the the change rooms for a game, do you you each take it in turns of of getting on the ox and putting on some tunes or is it like Captain's Choice or is it no music? Like we're we're here to we're here to talk. We don't we don't need to put any music to pump us up. No, we have music. Um, it typically falls to whoever brings the speaker with them, right? Uh, <laughs> and that'll end up being kind of. So it was one guy for a while, and then I think he got tired of like the pressure of choosing good songs, <laughs> so he passed it on to to another guy. Um, but yeah, they're, they're favorites. Definitely, people know the team the team favorites, the hits that get what played. Is the team here? What is, is, is there one song that the red caribou is like, it's the red caribou anthem. <laughs> so I'll tell you what, there's, there's, um, there's a song called tsunami. I have no idea who it's by. It's like a kind of electro type yep. drum and bass type song. I know the song. Um, yep. And so we played that. I don't know where it started, but it, it did. We played it before we played it before a match and everyone, gets standing up, grabs like a stick and like, I don't know, a rubbish bin or their shin pads and just bangs them together <laughs> as the song goes along and everybody's jumping up and down. That's kind of, we did that before the final of a tournament in Malaysia in 2019. <laughs> we got so rambunctious that somebody actually smashed the door, like was <laughs> opening and closing the door together and smashed it closed so hard that it... it locked itself and we couldn't get out of the changing room. Oh, wow. <laughs> so one of our coachings, one of our coaches had to kick the door down to let us out onto the pitch. <laughs> and from that moment on, Tsunami was banned before games. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the, it's the go-to play the last song before you go on the pitch.
got a quick ask just on the topic about King Dale. Now, I, I know Colin brought up, you know, uh, he, 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 he's got to be a kid. Come on, like this, this, if I have one goal on this show, Britt, it is just for Australians to just realise the legendary <laughs> status of this man. You know, it's just it's, he needs to be talked about more. But he, how, how is he? Have you talked to him recently? What, what's going on with Dale? Is he on his island? Like, is he going to be making an appearance I, in Beijing? Like, what? where, where is I Dale? I don't know. Well, actually, I mean, I think it was just yesterday or the day before they announced Beijing are only selling tickets to Chinese residents. So my family, we're sitting at the dinner table last night and mum's saying, oh, we can't come over and watch you. I was like, mum, I really don't think that that was going to happen given the, <laughs> what's going on in the world right now. But um, yeah, so I don't think we'll be seeing Dale in Beijing. We did see him, uh, the last time I saw Dale was at the 2019 World Championship in Deer Valley. So um, he just rocked up out of nowhere. Um, he came there just to watch and to cheer us on, which was really cool. And um, and then we also saw him at our pre-Olympic camp before Pyeongchang. He he came over with um, his family. He's actually got three young kids now. So Great. came with his family to have a little bit of a ski around and, and chat with the team and catch up, which was really nice. But I think, um, yeah, Dale, like you were saying before, this guy needs more recognition in Australia. But to be honest, I don't think he really wants it. He's a bit of a... Um, you know, likes to keep a low profile. Um, now I think he's just uh, spending all his time and energy into to being a good dad he's, and to into his family. So, he's an enigma. Um, <laughs> he just really. Who is. knows? Maybe we'll see some some uh, some mini bag Smith kids treading moguls hey, in a couple of years. Mini bag Smith. <laughs> mini bag Smith. That, 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 just just saying. Next time you speak to him, just there is a, a random podcast that would love to. He's our dream guest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just just saying, and uh, you know the enigma. I mean, again, he is co uh, equal greatest mm-hmm. winter Olympian of all time in this country in terms of medals won. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I mean, he was super generous with his time with both Matt and I when we were younger athletes on the team, and um, you know, I can only imagine him being being a good dad um, in that regard to his kids. So, who knows? Maybe there'll be some some future superstars um, of winter sport coming through there. Now, another one, Colin mentioned we did commentary during Pyeongchang. It was a, that was our very first commentary we ever did, wasn't it, Colin? Yeah. Like, oh, no, we did rowing during, uh, we did Kim Brennan's race back in uh, Rio, but uh, we've oh, expanded. We're, we've expanded our commentary repertoire. We actually do a bit more prep. We did a, about 10 or 11 days worth of commentary during Tokyo. So we're prepping for oh, Beijing. Nice. Now, Jared, our co-host, he had our very famous <laughs> moguling call of commentating by simply going mogul, 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 jump, mogul, 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 jump. Can you maybe give us some more advice in terms of what we should be saying rather than just simply going mogul, 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 jump, mogul, 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 jump? Well, okay, so maybe to one of the things that you could outline to the listeners is and the viewers is what you're actually looking for on the mogul run. So maybe the breakdown of what moguls is. So it's based 60% on the turn technique, 20% on the jumps, and then 20% on the speed. So maybe you can talk about what's actually going in, going on, on <laughs> during the process of them skiing down mogul, mogul, mogul. <laughs> so are they keeping their feet together? Um, what's the angulation that, that's going on there? The absorption, um, are there any leg splits? And then you can talk about the jumps, what tricks they're doing. 
uh, how they're landing them and their feet together when they land. Is there much um, collapse of the chest? Is the upper body stable and steady as they're skiing down the moguls? Um, and then, of course, a little bit of background on the athletes. So um, that'll require a little bit of um, research and preparation. So that's but, too hard. See, Britt, sorry. You, know. you just made like, I'm sticking with the mogul, mogul, mogul. That's just too much for us. We're, we're well, two lazy <laughs> podcast hosts. We don't have time for that. Well, then what do you say when someone crashes? <laughs> Bugger. Uh, <laughs> which I think we, 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 well. we commented a lot on. Oh, that's your favourite mogul. That's that's the one she's yeah, jumping on They're right going there, for the so. favourite mogul. But, that's a favourite one. There, there. The only thing we didn't do is the timing, like you said, with the one second, two, three, four, five. All right, there are just. <laughs> so if we start counting along with it, that, that'll you know, maybe. Yeah, you're the expert bit. commentator. Like you've got two Aussies who watch this sport every four years, right? Let's like I was asking you to commentate on AFL. You're not going to do it. <laughs> And so your question about preparation, I do do a stack and I take it very seriously because, in fact, it's so I have a training program like I'm an athlete, systems, you know, schedule, um, uh, you know, I, I hardly ever throw anything out. I've got boxes of stuff from previous games, which I whittle down after the games and so it's ready for the next one and with previous results. And then it's watching, listening, talking, you know. So for the canoe slalom, you know, I watched – I watched two years of World Cups in in the two weeks before the game. So I, um, you know, read, listened to podcasts, you know, got insights, spoke to coaches, and then of course I had Richard Fox, Jess's dad, sitting next to me. So, which only happened in the last week. So I didn't really need any of the stuff that I'd done because I had him sitting next to me. I could have just read out names. Um, so the triathlon, yeah, and and the track and field, the same thing. And for the Paralympics, it was exactly the same. I do a lot of work. Um, and you know, Bruce has been the, the one that showed if if you know if, if I think I do a lot of work in the lead up to a games, Bruce does ten times more work. And to give you an example, if there's an athlete from Azerbaijan in lane three of the hundred, I'm pretty happy to know something about the athlete from Azerbaijan. Bruce would turn up knowing how every athlete from you know what's the best performance from Azerbaijan at the games so far. So it might be in weightlifting, or it might be in judo, or it might be in karate or whatever it is that's the level that he goes to so he knows all there is to know about the athlete from Azerbaijan plus their best events I know where to find it if I need it he's actually looked at it and he may never use it which is his complete genius that he would use he'd use about half of what he's got at his disposal when he sits down to commentate Look, we, we never say Amazing. no to any good Bruce stories on this show. And, and, you, and you, you talk about being in a room with Carl Lewis. I tell you one thing, if I ever ended up in any form of media situation with Bruce Mack, that's my Carl Lewis right there. I'm just, I would just, I wouldn't speak. I'd just stare. I don't get starstruck <laughs> often, but I'd just be like, fuck, it's Bruce Mack. What do I do? What do I do? Um, which it's kind of, it's, it's one of those moments. And then you sort of just divide and conquer. So I was getting to two or three venues every single day. I was writing the lead results file for every one of those events every day. Um, I was doing a news network uh, preview and wrap up in a lot of circumstances. My usual prolific tweeting and everything like that. So I've always said, if you're going to the venue 
and you do not know this athlete and you do not know what this story is. And usually I have anywhere from 300 to 500 words written on the background of the athlete, the journey of the athlete in the women's uh, soccer match, uh, foot, footy, football match um, example. You know, I had a lot of that story already written because in the chaos of those moments, and could it have been more bloody chaotic and stressful than that <laughs> the, the women's gold medal match? I mean, yeah. that is a reporter's <laughs> nightmare when you are filing on file. You know, like, are you kidding me? Like, Labe makes this save to oh, to keep the match insane. alive, and the- we were on air recording our episode, and we were watching it live, like as as as, as in two Australians. Colin wasn't on that episode, and we're like shitting ourselves. Going, what is going on right? <laughs> now this is insane that was our favorite moment of the entire olympics yeah i might have i might have shit myself in the press box at yokohama stadium that night partly partly because of what was going on and partly because i knew that there would be hundreds of thousands of of people reading my match recap I, I, I haven't said this yet, but I'll tell you, talk about vulnerability. If there's one story of the games that I could have a mulligan on, it is that one. Because the CBC, we were, we were a well-oiled machine. I was very impressed by us. We had results, stories up within two minutes of the conclusion of, of knowing that they had won the medal. Like, it, we have never been better than that. So we're talking... I needed to have that file within 30 seconds of the finish. So for that women's soccer match, I had probably about 500 words to the desk, 30 seconds at the conclusion of that final kick. But then I, but then I would do a write through Ben of every story sort of after I had talked to the athletes and, but the, the, Christine Sinclair, all she wanted to do was party. And I, can you blame her no, after all, all of that? Like, I I wanted to party with her because I had <laughs> the pass that got me on the pitch. So I was with the team. But do you think they were interested in talking to me? Like, they, they gave me all the time in the world, but they wanted to be in the champagne celebration. So it took a really long time. So my anxiety level was through the roof because you know part of you wants to say hey let's just do the freaking interview so i can get this thing to bed so it was probably about two hours after the conclusion of the match that i finally got the second right through with like some coherent beautiful like poetry of the moment but even then, I don't think it was my best. I mean, it was the most read story. I think it, it had 1.3 million views of that story that day. Wow. Um, which kind of blows my mind. But uh, I, felt, I felt pressure. This is a historic moment for Canada. Yeah. And you better damn well find the words to match that moment. What happens when you sort of have to back up and go for that second race in the 500, knowing that really the chance of that medal is going to, how, how are you able to kind of put that in the back of your mind and just go, okay, well, I'm going to do the best I can right now and maybe show what I was capable of in this second part, which, you know, could have gone a completely different way had I not fallen over. Yeah. Um, 
Now, maybe I'm going to share things I shouldn't share right now, but I think it's interesting for people and it's nice to know. So we like hearing um, these I'm secrets. Start, go for it. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna start with I'm gonna start with media training. Uh, so uh, every Olympic Australian Olympic athlete they receive an amount of media training, uh, and one of the things they they teach you is how to handle you know uh, not getting your best result. So not not turning up on TV and being a crybaby uh, about stuff. Um, but uh, one of the strategies that they teach you for this is, you know, every, of course, everyone has to vent if they don't have a good experience, but just make sure you do all of your venting off camera. So don't, don't, don't go on TV. No one wants to see that. Let's be honest. No one wants to see that. So what I did after that first 500 meter is, uh, there's a, there's an hour and a half in between the 500 meters, by the way. And after that first 500 meter, of course, I, I left quite abruptly, um, Take, actually, let's take two steps back. One of the, I had a choice at the moment that I was laying on the ice after I crashed is I could have exited the track without completing the distance, which would have meant that I was immediately out of the whole competition. Yeah. Uh, because I didn't complete the distance or I could finish the distance and be able to stand on the start line for a second try. So I made the choice at that moment to get up, yeah, very slowly skate out the entire distance so that I could have another attempt, even though I knew that at that moment, any chance of an Olympic medal was completely out the window. Uh, so I did that, took my skates off, um, obviously very frustrated, didn't talk to anybody, uh, remembered my media training, went and I, I went and found um, a dressing room somewhere in the venue that was devoid of anybody. Uh, and I proceeded to smash a lot of things. Uh, wow. Just everything I could find got thrown at the wall and broken. Uh, and I got that out of my system within about 30 minutes, probably used way too much energy. 30 minutes. That's a lot of smashing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I had a, I had a couple of people that I trusted on the phone uh, in that time too. Uh, just, yeah just venting, talking to them. Uh, and then yeah, I, I didn't even warm up for the second race. Like, I mean, I was warm because I was fairly physical in between, but I, I put my, I put my racing suit on, I put my skates back on and I just lined up for the second race, but there's, there's no amount of, or at least I don't think there's any amount of psychological repair that could be done in that amount of time that would get me back to in a frame of mind that would have been optimal enough to go and put down a second race that would be good enough to show that I was the best. Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. But like I said, when I turned up to that Olympics, I was incredibly green. I didn't have the experience that I probably would have needed on large uh, ice skating events to handle all the things that were being thrown at me. Um, so uh, I turned up, I stood on the start line. I did another race. Um, my time was about, what I think four tenths of a second too slow to be up with the guys that were really competing for the medals. Um, but yeah, obviously not so far away to say that I was in a completely different class, but unfortunately 17th. that time was worth, worth nothing. Yeah. 17th I'm seeing here. So you still, you make top 20 on that top, that second time for somebody you didn't train and you were smashing shit for 30 minutes. That's pretty decent. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought, I thought so too. So, 
well. <laughs> Look, I'm trying to the positives here again. Silver medal in the 600 meters, top 20 in that second 500 after smashing crap for half an hour and not really doing a warm yeah. up. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's, let's be honest, that's pretty darn good for an Olympics. Just putting the silver lining on it for you there, Daniel. <laughs> no, I was uh, in the end. Um, I reflect on that whole Olympics as actually an incredibly positive experience in my life um, because whether I didn't uh, get to show my sporting credentials, but I, I really got a lot of experience in handling things and situations that have benefited me in so many other ways in the following years. And uh, I, I, uh, I, I don't have many tattoos that, that people know about, but I actually have yeah, yeah, a, a tattoo of Russian, Russian folk art uh, to remind me of that, uh, of that, yeah, forever because I still view it as a positive experience in my life. And at that time, my training partner, one of my, uh, yeah, one of my close friends, someone who I spent a lot of time training with and I suppose fighting, fighting with in trainings, he mm-hmm. came away with a, with a gold medal. So yeah, emotional roller coaster to say the least. So many great memories to go through there. And we, of course, will need to thank every single one of our guests who have appeared on this show between episodes 150 to 200. Without them, we wouldn't have had those clips. And without them, we wouldn't have had such great memories and fun times here on the show. And we're going to have great memories and fun times still to come because we are so close, weeks away from the Beijing Olympics. Now, I'm sure you would have uh, seen that recently we went from having an episode every two days to an episode every single day. We've got that much content to bring you that we are bringing you an episode every single day from now until the end of the Beijing Olympics. That is right. We have episodes every single day in the lead up to the beginning, the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics, right through to the closing ceremony. So if you're an Olympics fan, you've got so much content to enjoy over the coming weeks. Tomorrow, we uh, kick things off with a great chat with an American speed skater by the name of Chad Hedrick. Now, if you listened to our Daniel Gregg episode yesterday, you would have heard him mention Chad Hedrick. Well, we've got him on the show, funnily enough. Chad, uh, multiple Olympic medalist, five-time Olympic medalist in the sport of speed skating, both Turin and Vancouver. Great chat chat with him going over his career and uh, really to whet your appetite in the lead up to Beijing. And I will say that every interview that we have now between now and the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics will be with a winter athlete. And we will be ticking off the final sport we have not spoken to somebody before. I mentioned yesterday with Daniel that we ticked off all the winter sports except for one. That one sport that we haven't ticked off, ski jumping. We have plenty of ski jumpers. We've got too many ski jumpers now coming our way in the coming days. So stay tuned for that. We've also got some Nordic combined athletes, Alpine skiers. It's very, very exciting, really, of who we've got in the lead up to Beijing. And just before Beijing, too, we will, of course, have our full preview episode ahead of our daily coverage of every single day during Beijing 2022. But we'll also bring you a special clip show as well, similar to what we did today. But this will only be highlighting the guests that we've had on the show between Pyeongchang and Beijing, who will be competing, who have qualified for Beijing just as a athletes to watch style episode for you to get your appetite wet ahead of those Olympics. And I will also add every single interview now moving forward 
will now be a video interview. We've been teasing this for quite some time that we would eventually bring in video interviews. Well, from Chad onwards tomorrow, you can search for Off The Podium on YouTube and you will not only be able to download this audio version of the episode, you'll be able to watch Chad talk. You'll be able to watch Ski Jumpers talk, Nordic Combined Athletes talk, all the great athletes we've got coming up in the coming days. You will be able to watch them on YouTube, a great new addition to our show. And we're very, very excited to finally bring you the visual element that so many of you have been crying out for. That'll only just be for the interviews. We're not going to bring you video episodes every single day during Beijing. You don't need to stare at my face for, for 14 days straight, 16 days straight. You're going to get enough of that staring at these great athletes we've got coming on the show. So, uh, Search for Off The Podium on YouTube as of tomorrow. Subscribe as you do on all our other great social media platforms. Stay up to date with everything we've got out there. And, of course, the podcasting platforms as well. Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio. We are there. Hit subscribe. Let us know what you think of the show. We would very much appreciate the feedback. And we thank you for being on this journey with us. We've got so much great stuff coming along. The Olympics are here, folks. They're just around the corner. And we're just amping up the coverage. And I should say... Seriously, not that any of this hasn't been serious, Ben, but after 200 episodes, it has been an absolute pleasure to be able to bring you all the content we have. Every single guest we've had on this show, it has been an honour to speak to them, and every single second you, the listener, have listened, has been an honour to have you on board. So I will speak on behalf of Colin and Jared by saying a big thank you for tuning in. Whether this is your first episode or you've been on board for all 200, we very much appreciate your support, and we look forward to the next 200 more. Who knows how many we will keep going as we uh, continue to bring you this little podcast called Off the Podium. Thanks again for tuning in. Special shout out, as always, to Jason Momoa. My name is Ben. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, go left. What an episode. You loved every single second of it. It's been, again, just quickly reminding you once again, if you want to help us win a Sports Podcast Award, sportspodcastawards.com, register to vote, click on Best Olympic and Paralympic Podcast section, listen to the other nominees, and then go, hey, Off the Podium's awesome. They're so good. They put in so much work and so much effort, and we just love them, and they deserve to go on the podium for once. Ben's awesome. Jared's awesome. Colin's okay, but he's also kind of awesome. We'd really appreciate it. And particularly if you've actually listened to the rest of this and ended up here, because generally I assume you've well and truly tuned out by now. But seriously, if you're at this point of the podcast, then you're a true listener. And that means that you're a true fan and you should vote for us. Sportspodcastawards.com. Do it now. We will thank you forever. Literally ever. Like every episode moving forward, we will thank you forever. Sportspodcastawards.com. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll speak to you next time on Off the Podium. I'm really going to go now. Bye.